Hello and welcome to episode 299 of the Crate and Crowbar. Earlier, Marsh, when I said I knew all the words I was going to say, I lied. I didn't know what day it was. What day is it, Marsh? <laughs> it is Thursday and the computer doesn't say It's maybe it the 17th of October? Ah, oh, could be. Who knows? 17th, correct. Good guess me. The point is, someone a long time ago, five or six years ago now, said it'd be really good if you said the date at the beginning of every episode of the podcast. Um... And I think I have maybe spoiled being in the podcast and fulfilling that obligation. But whoever you were, <laughs> I hope you feel honoured and still listen. Um, speaking of throwbacks, it's just me, Chris Thurston, and you, Marsh Davies, tonight. That's right. Yeah. A big empty room with two very small men in it. Yeah. Do you remember when we first moved into this big empty house? Not really, no. My no. memories of pretty much the last week and beyond <laughs> are very, very vague at this point. Right. Well, we should talk about the last week then, um, because... I guess they switched off Fortnite and got a tremendous amount of attention by doing that and switched back on again. Yeah, pretty Incredible. good uh, news stories for what was a server outage, I guess. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, it wasn't, I guess I saw a good thread about it by someone whose name I completely forgotten because this is just fucking t- t- top content. <laughs> uh, I couldn't, I couldn't be firing on any more cylinders. These are all the ones that I have. And, um, but it was a good thread uh, pointing out that they've essentially launched Fortnite Chapter 2, or Fortnite 2 Season 1, hmm. or Fortnite 2, uh, Minecraft 2, uh, yeah. I don't know, someone else nil. I don't know what the scoreboard is at this point. Mm. Um, I think point uh, is, uh, Alice on uh, Rock Paper Shotgun quipped that they should have called it Month. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Nice. Um, nonetheless, so they, it's a it's a big update to a game I do not play, so I can't really give an informed uh take on on that mm-hmm. save that they have sort of overhauled the entire map so completely new island they had previously pulled out chunks of the map and redone them and and changed things about it mm. but i think this also comes with a lot of new features like boats and swimming and sort of presumably engine level interactive things that required a much bigger change than they've done previously is the old game completely gone then you can't play uh anything mm. from Old Fortnite. No, I don't believe... So. I mean, all the modes are intact and things, but you will do them on the new map now, I believe. Right. So uh, they've done this before. Hmm. They've made permanent changes before. Right, yeah. But they've always been changes to an existing world, right? Yeah, like, I think... I think... I don't... I really, like... I'm peripherally aware of it because you have to be... I don't play it myself. But it's like, Loot Lake exploded, I think, and was a crater for a bit. All this stuff, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's 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 life game stuff. It's actually very interesting as life game stuff goes in terms of how they handled it. I think one of the interesting things about Fortnite is it is... An incredible example of a game with completely opaque lore that definitely has lore. Does it? But it, it's not about anything. Like, there are no characters. It's like, it is, I think the only example I can think of, of storytelling completely detached from characters with agency, mm. which you wouldn't think was possible. And you might be right. <laughs> but it kind of, well, yeah. what it is really is like, there's a sort of logic or a series of interactions. Like, what will the meteor do? And what do all these rockets mean? And right. what was this time loop thing? And all of this that people sort of speculate about. It's basically mm-hmm. like, if you took all of the hard sci-fi, or not hard, even hard sci-fi, if you took all of the sort of, sort of, uh, timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly elements of Lost. Yes. And removed everything else about the show. <laughs> and just had them hanging in a vacuum. Uh-huh. That's what you, you know, you get. It's just enough of those mystery things. And it's kind of interesting. It's like the J.J. Abrams mystery box mm. redu- reduced to the point where you just need that. You just need maybe time travel and people will speculate about that. Right. I always think of these kind of games as just sort of like a, a surface on which fan fiction can grow. You right. know, you can get those those green walls, which are just like a permeable kind of concrete that's designed to encourage moss. Mm. That's what it is, basically. Yeah. But I think that's a... 
I don't think that's an invalid use of the medium to no, tell no. a story because, you know, especially for a younger audience to get super, super, super invested. Mm-hmm. Like, I, you know, I know that we, we have both worked professionally in a space very adjacent to this. Mm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so, you know, the, um, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting method. And so what they did basically is take all that stuff to a conclusion, do this huge event, which is very lavishly mm. produced where, uh, at the end of a particular match for all the players involved and in a cool way also people who were in the UI which was cool oh. um, the the entire island got sucked into a black hole and the entire game was replaced with a black screen basically hmm. players were expecting and live streamers were expecting it to suddenly burst back into life and you know hooray here's you know Fortnite 2 or whatever it just didn't happen just went completely dark um, I did see the cool effect that if people were just idling in the main menu, even the main menu panels got sucked into the abyss and then it got replaced <laughs> with the black screen. It's just kind of cute. Yeah. Like, I like that. It's kind of fun. Um, I saw a good thread, which I will, uh, figure out the link for, um, mm. sort of explaining that, you know, and I think this is right. This, the changeover they're doing should have, um, almost certainly involved a, a pretty big infrastructure change, right? There's, there's right, going to be a yeah. lot of physical server hardware that needs to be updated. There's going to be a, yeah. a shitload of work to do. And, and that's for- what they were doing. When- right, yeah. And Fortnite effectively had a, a really, you know, has a pretty good track record as a service, right? Like mm-hmm. in an era where, you know, Destiny's had some struggles recently and uh, Warcraft had some struggles recently and all of these things. Mm-hmm. It's got a pretty, given how many players it has, the extraordinary number of players it has, and the fact that it doesn't rely on other people hosting servers or it being hived out to the community as other popular games might be, it's kind of extraordinary that you don't hear stories about Fortnite being down, yeah. like ever. No. Oh, God... I imagine you've you've been in, in meetings where you've proposed similar solutions and they've maybe not been accepted. Wouldn't it be so good to be the guy who said, well, why don't we just suck the entire game into a black hole? And that idea not only won out, but turned out to be an amazing success. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's to their credit that, that, yeah, not only did they sort of feel that they went with it. Like, mm. so essentially they, what they could have done really is covered it by saying, you know, uh, you know, hey, we've got a really exciting update planned. Mm. Here's what's coming. It's going to take us three or four days to implement it. Be patient, everybody. Here yeah. we go. Yeah. Right. And then done a press cycle around it or something. Like, you know, we're going to send some influences to a big, I don't know, roller coaster theme park and they're mm. going to get to play on it and make videos that will cover you in the four days gap or whatever. Like, I'm literally thinking about how it comes this. Like, yeah, yeah. this is now my job. Like, um, you know, and that, that would work, I think. And it would probably be expensive and yeah, it always, would ge- you always think transparency is the best option. Yeah, you do. Maybe like, it uh, yeah, you think, you know, be honest to people and sort of say, this is what it's going to take for us to achieve this. And so we're going to take the game off for this amount of time. And that's not what they did. What they did was just have downtime on purpose, mm-hmm. have unexplained downtime and not just that, but like delete every single tweet on the Fortnite account. And replace <laughs> yeah. all of, you know, all of the advertising things with just blank, black voids. And it was, it's a, it's an interest, strategically a really interesting kind of, uh, and I am borrowing this somewhat from the thread. It's, it's an interesting point proving thing hmm. because, you know, candidly, like Fortnite, I think needed to do something to prove that it was essential still. Cause obviously it is a phenomenon and it's going to continue to be a phenomenon just by weight of players. Yeah. But. People, you know, it, it has been a little while now. Yeah. And people's attention moves. The news cycle is definitely looking for the next thing. You yeah. know, Minecraft, then Fortnite, and then it's, you can, you can see it sniffing its little nose. Yes. And, and also, you know, um, uh, Minecraft had a huge uptick in, in popularity recently, mm. in part because of, 
um, players getting nostalgic for it and coming back, yeah. you know, and leaving Fortnite to go back for a little bit or going to WoW Classic instead. Yeah, yeah. Right. Like there's, it depends like how old you are as a Fortnite player. It determines which thing you get nostalgic for. Like I miss World of Warcraft or mm. I miss Minecraft, which is basically the difference between being 30 and 20. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, and so this act of switching the game off and therefore I'm getting BBC news coverage of the game yeah. being off is a real clever way of saying this is still like the most culturally relevant game because hmm. no one else gets um you know big press for just being offline i don't think i don't think it would have been as successful if they'd done anything less though i mean yeah. they they went to the wall to sell this idea of them everything being mm. sucked into black hole i think if if they'd half-assed it in any way it would have it would have generated a lot of anger rather than excitement mm. Right, yeah, if it was just suddenly off. Yeah. And it looked like incompetence. This is the thing. Like, it's funny. I would always, my instinct would always be transparency. Hmm. And then, cause, because if you, if you, because incompetence is bad, but the flip side to incompetence is malice. <laughs> yeah. And what they went for was malice, really. <laughs> yeah. Like they went for, we've taken this away from you <laughs> and you can't have it. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think maybe if you've gone for transparency, people just aren't that generous and people have been impatient. Knowing yeah. that something was coming, but because they they reserved a sense of mystery. Yeah, it's interesting, it. isn't it? Because it's like, it, it, I, I, you know, if they'd done like an announcement a week before saying, "Hey, we've got something really big coming, preview soon, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera, they they announce the update, everyone covers it because it's Fortnite, obviously, and mm. they call it Fortnite Chapter Two. So people are going to truncate that to Fortnite Two, which will SEO extremely well. Everyone's going to cover it, but someone's going to get the op-ed out. Can Fortnite 2 save Fortnite yeah, within yeah. moments of that being the, mm. the, the thing? Whereas we've killed Fortnite, dare us to bring it back. It's like a real <laughs> yeah. power move the other way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like you can't get out there, can't get out in front of it and write that is Fortnite dying op-ed because mm -hmm. they've murdered it. And that, <laughs> it's clever. Yeah. It's really clever. Like, I mean, I, you know, what the, you know, whether the game itself is better now? Mm, mm. I don't know. I imagine it is. I guess so. They've got all the resources in the world to make it better. So ideally they would. But yeah, it's, yeah, brassy, I would yeah. say. Yeah. Yeah. I look forward to it dominating news cycles forever. <laughs> mm. Mm. Do you think it will ever be knocked off the, the pedestal? Do you I, think? I think about this a bunch, maybe for obvious reasons, but like, yeah. I wonder about that because I think it will be safely on a pedestal for a very, very long time. Mm. But I think there's a, there's a distinction. Some real phenomena games, mm. some there's, there's several kinds of like real sort of, you know, era defining phenomena, basically. And there are the ones that completely, there are two kinds really. There are the ones that completely sort of revolutionize a way, invent a way of playing with people yeah. or a way of playing. Mm hmm and there are the ones that are the first polished free option to something people already like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so in the former category, I would put World of Warcraft and Minecraft. Mm -hmm. Um, all the crafts basically, because World of Warcraft wasn't the first MMO, but it laid out so many templates that made them accessible to people that mm -hmm. it was, you know, it was, it was vast, so much vastly more accessible and consumable as a, as a thing right. rather than, you know, rather than this sort of niche grindy, uh, very much personal investment driven kind of EverQuest mm -hmm. thing. It was this, everyone's on the same theme park ride and you can meet up with your friends and it's relatively straightforward. You know, it invented so many, it's a, it's a big, it created a genre basically of right. wow like MMOs yeah. rather than whatever the hell people were trying to achieve before that, which I loved what people were trying to achieve before that, but no one figured it out. 
Minecraft does obviously Minecraft and the, the examples in the other category are games of League of Legends and, hmm. um, Fortnite, I think. And where the, the, the key is not being first or even especially original. It's about being like the most attractive, free, relatively slick version of a thing. Yeah. Right. Like the way you beat PUBG is be free and be PG 13. Get rid of the AK 47s, add big, well, I think, I think Fortnite has AK 47s, but you know what I mean? Add Mm -hmm. nice, chunky, wow style rarities and all the nice, all the big flashy, you know, kind of drop icons and big chunky materials that you want to put in your mouth. Silly costumes, silly dances. Yeah, big silly dances. And yeah, make it free. Make it, but get it on mobile Mm -hmm. and you, you know, that's how you do a phenomena. So I think it'd be fine, Mm -hmm. but I don't know if it will like, I don't know what it, what it, you know, bequeaths to the industry beyond just bring up a certain proportion of a certain age group of players in perpetuity. Yeah. I wonder if I, I assume uh, Epic's maneuvers with the store aren't just simply about breaking the steam stranglehold on, on selling games on PC. I, I assume that's as much about realizing that a hit game doesn't last indefinitely Mm. and that they might as well build some other kind of business out of out of the success of that game. Right. It's kind of, in a way, it's interesting because it feels like they're doing a reverse Valve. Yeah. In that, you know, uh, you know, I think Valve have been explicit about the fact that their reasons for making Dota 2 was to expand the market for their platform, for their store in, in Russia and China and to get right. loads more. Because, you know, those those territories kind of needed, uh, you know, would respond to a, a an improved version of Defense of the Ancients um, rather than a sort of more aggressively monetized free to play thing. So that's one of the reasons Dota is so generous because it doesn't require much of a buy-in. Valve yeah. didn't need it to require much of a buy-in because they're making the money elsewhere. Right. They had the, they had the store. They just needed to bring more people to it. Mm. Epic's the other way around. They suddenly found themselves with loads of people and they had to find somewhere else for them to go and somewhere else for them to spend money. Yeah. And if they can't make loads of games themselves. They should sell everyone else's, right? Like it, it, it follows, but it's, it's, it's kind of interesting that. You know, they. I wonder, I wonder at what point they won't need Fortnite. I suspect they always hmm. will. Hmm. I don't know. <laughs> Come back in a year or two years, and we'll see. Yeah. I, th- I suspect their um, their marketplace will be very successful eventually. Mm. If it isn't already, I'm sure it's making lots of money. But I mean, you know, I I, I think a lot of the objections to different marketplaces will f- just evaporate over the course of time. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, inevitably, like all it takes is enough people. It's all it takes is enough sunk cost to form a fallacy. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) And that's games. (laughs) Would you like to talk about my vast sunk cost fallacy? I would love to talk about your cost. Can we talk about destiny? Yes. (laughs) So, um, I've ruined my entire life. Oh dear. And I hate to break this to everyone on the podcast. I've been away for a couple of weeks. Uh, I was traveling. Um, so, uh, and as I, I, I have, as so I listened to the episode, two episodes ago, I think when Alex, sort of, I think when, uh, Shadowkeep had just launched and yes. Destiny had just, um, been reborn as a free game on Steam and so on. So I appreciate that some of this has been discussed on the pod, but the, the things they've done are go a bit further than that. So in addition to, you know, everyone who had a battle.net version of Destiny moving over to, uh, the Steam version, hmm. uh, it's now fully cross-play compatible. So it's cross compatible with PS4 and Xbox, etc. Um, if you had multiple accounts previously, you have to pick which one you consider to be the official one. You can have the others, but that one is the one that gets cross play. Right. I only had one. I was playing on PS4 and I had been playing on PS4 for years. So I hadn't, I hadn't played Destiny on PC, 
because I didn't, I, you know, that sunk cost. Mm-hmm. There it is. But also, you know, you attach to a particular character and playing it for years. And so I went from Destiny, something I, you know, play on the couch and then many months of, uh, just not doing that. And maybe a nine month break from the game, a game that I played pretty religiously since it came out. And, um, but then suddenly I found myself able to play it on the couch in my new house. I go upstairs to my office and play on my PC where it alt tabs beautifully, which makes it the kind of perfect, just five minutes kind of, I'm going to play a mm. crucible match kind of thing. Very quick menus I hear. Actually, uh, I've experienced it. But yeah, yeah they're, 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 they're nice. Um, it also runs on my laptop. Does it? Really well. Mm. Yeah. So that meant I could take it with me to Canada. And so during slow moments, because I had every, you know, we were at Shucks, the Shut Up and Sit Down convention and during some, uh, quiet moments in the hotel room or if I was feeling knackered, I could just stick Destiny on and play Destiny on the hotel Wi-Fi because of its bizarrely great netcode that seems to mean it works on anything. Hmm. And this means I can play it almost anywhere. And so it's become this sort of like almost it's, 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 it's a testament to Disco Elysium, which we'll get to that something else has pulled me away from it because <laughs> yeah. it used to be like, okay, this is the game I step up for my desk to go and do. And now it's like, I'm in the mood for a PC game. How about Destiny? No, I think I'll go downstairs. I actually, this actually happened. I was upstairs, <laughs> my new office is in the loft. I was in the loft and I was like, it was in the evening. I was going to sit down to play a game. And I was like, no, I've been up here all day for work. I'm not just going to sit up here. And I was literally loading Destiny. And I closed Destiny, walked downstairs, sat in the living room and loaded Destiny. And any point in the midway, I could have picked up my laptop and just sat on the floor and played Destiny there. Oh, no. <laughs> so, yeah, it's over for me now. <laughs> it really is. Um, but uh, I have been... It, th- that game has gone through so many cycles of, oh, this is not quite working and, oh, they fixed it again. But, um, th- it's in, it feels like it's in a really good spot now. Like free to play seems to work for it. And I'll be, I'll be, I know you've been playing it more, so I'll be uh, curious hmm. to see what you've been ta- making of it. But like, I found myself sort of, uh, really appreciating like just how much expertise goes into, has gone into, kind of furnishing the sort of experience that it is. And I think it's easy to be a bit cynical about sort of bottomless grind kind of hobby games. Mm-hmm. And there's a bunch of these around, right? This is Warcraft or Warframe or, or anything like that. And I, maybe this is a, a, a sort of line in the sand for me. I don't think this, I think this is a genre and I don't think it's invalid in and of itself. And I think there is an art to creating them. And I think the destiny is as close as it gets to kind of having sort of fair and interesting solutions to a lot of the things that rise up out of that. Right. sort of set of circumstances the fact that yeah you've got this um they have replaced what were the kind of chance based or kind of repetitive grinds of the first game with just so many quests to do that you have to pick what you're going to focus on but they found ways of for example taking you know the idea of a quest where you have to kill x with x or get this kind of this many pulse rifle kills or whatever and using that as a way of both you set your own goals particularly in the end game and you just go and pursue that goal yeah um, within, you know, shopping lists, within shopping lists, within shopping lists, but also, um, in a meaningful way, making a game out of essentially the project management of it. Like I think Alex mentioned on the podcast, uh, two episodes ago that he doesn't feel like he was playing it particularly efficiently. And I think the real key to the joy of destiny is understanding that efficiency is one of the things that you're actually pursuing. It's not about min maxing it. It's, it's like, if you get, uh, if I'm, if you're working on a quest that requires you to get a certain amount of submachine gun kills and you're also working on one that requires, you know, um, arc weapon kills, it's going into your vault of weapons and going, well, can I get an arc submachine gun? And then can I can make a build around that, which is going to let me progress in this kind of quest faster? And what do I understand about, um, or maybe I need to kill a particular kind of enemy. 
what do I understand enough about the world? Or am I likely to find them in sufficient numbers to do this quickly? And that rewards you for your understanding of your own loadout, your ability to create new loadouts, to experiment with how deep the weapon customization and build customization goes. Your right. not understanding of the world and what kind of activities are available that will get you those sorts of points faster. Hmm. And I really find that rewarding. I think part of me just loves management, really, and managing things in games. And I think the reason it's such a success for me now particularly is it's a series of, I mean, ultimately pointless tasks, but in video games, isn't it? Like uh, a series of ultimately pointless tasks that you can plan in a really satisfying way. You can like, I'm going to build it. You know, in Diablo, you build, you were the best equipment you've got. This is like taking that phenomenon, like that, that principle and saying like, well, try wearing something different to do this. And then, you know, you experiment with a different build for a bit. Like they do this in PVP. They do this in, you know, PVE stuff. Um, and then, and then the individual unit of interaction with the world, which has been mentioned, I think plenty, but like everything feels so good and all the combat feels so nice and it all reacts so dynamically and everything feels great that the it's, it's fun for me on both a, a micro and a macro level, if that makes sense. Right. It has almost like a clickers, a clicker games macro level planning, hmm. but instead of clicking, it's bungee shooting, which I far prefer. It's a form of clicking. Hmm. You click on alien ghost man head, it pop, he go, ah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's immensely satisfying to me. I don't know if that was a bit too sudish, but it's like no, that, that, that space, I think is like, that is like sort of almost my defensive grind in a way that it is yeah. this sort of, it's actually a game in itself. And one thing they've done is really successful. It gives you so many different pathways to follow hmm. that you can just, you know, and if you're, if you're overwhelmed by that, I can understand it, but there's also part of it. It's just like, it's satisfying to, Hmm. To, to polish it off. I don't know how, you, how you've been feeling about it or what your, indeed what your experience of it has been. Well, it's interesting you say that. I, I hadn't really considered it in those terms, but now that you've said it, that jives a lot with what I've been experiencing. Although I don't think I, I'm at a stage where I can enjoy it in the way you do. Hmm. I think, uh, I think I'm missing. So it feels like, you're enjoying like the tactical level of stuff and you're enjoying the meta level of mm. stuff. But really where I get my motivation as a player is from the strategic level of stuff, which I right. don't feel is really expressed that well uh, by Destiny. And I, I, I can totally get sucked into the kind of meta level stuff and I can get, uh, and I obviously enjoy, I enjoy the moment to moment combat. But the, the way that the game is structured for newbies at the moment is is just so overwhelming that you can't really perceive the ways in which you could pursue that efficiency mm. in, a, in a gratifying way and there's no way you could pursue the narrative level kind of uh enticements let's mm -hmm. say i mean i just it's completely confusing there's no <laughs> there, there is some sort of onboarding but then it just plonks you in a world with a bunch of different things that contradict exactly what it's just been telling you to do and there's just a, a just a tidal wave of <laughs> bullshit terms yeah. that completely douse you um I am enjoying it. I, I do like tootling around in it um, because, you know, bungee combat feels just always really fucking good. Mm. It just, they've, just, they've nailed it. But I do, I do, yeah, you know, I, I play it and I feel like, oh, this would be so much better if it was in a linear narrative experience. Right. Which is a weird thing for, for me to kind of yearn for, I think. Mm. But um, it's funny that I, I didn't realize it was the, the structural narrative of Halo games that were the things that I enjoyed about it. I wouldn't mm. have ever said that those were the things I loved about Halo, but it turns out I do miss that. Yeah, right. I think Destiny has achieved that on one bit by bit, but it's like, yeah. but I think you needed to, you needed to be there with the chronology as it progressed. Yeah, like playing every new campaign as it comes out, mm. you, you follow along and things build. And I think it's, it's interesting. Like they, 
um, there's a moment like there's there's some real classic bungee in Shadowkeep, which hasn't sort of even been mentioned, but like. It's sort of the real classic bungee thing is to turn a corner or cl- crawl out of a crash dropship and go, oh, a insert geometric object here in <laughs> insert in like unlikely space place for uh-huh. said geometric object. <laughs> for example, oh, a huge ring with mountains on it in mm. space. Mm. That's weird. Or oh, a big ball in the sky <laughs> <Yeah>. over the <laughs> last city. And, um, and this, and, and Shadow Keep does a, it actually stops you from jumping, stops you from running and makes you lower your weapons for a moment to appreciate a big triangle on the moon. And if you've been following Destiny since the very beginning, this is fucking mind blowing. And like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's worth it for the, you know, watching the, the, the hardcore Destiny streamers, particularly the law streamers who've been doing this for years, what turning that corner and going like, I can't believe they've done this. They've <laughs> finally done it. They've finally, oh my God. Like tears streaming down their eyes at this revelation of what it means. And for everyone else, it's like, mm, lovely skybox triangle on with the game. Well, this is the problem. I think they've done themselves a disservice through overstimulation because every skybox looks fucking, fucking amazing. amazing. I don't know what's meant to be important or not i just walk out in the first level i'm just you know i just my mind is blown yeah they did this <laughs> they, they keep doing it and they're all good at it it's in testament to them they keep managing to pull it off like when destiny 2 came out uh they hadn't really revealed what the raid would be the raid usually arrives about three weeks after the game launches right like to basically let players get to the point where they could even do it mm-hmm. and um and when the raid arrived for destiny 2 um it took the form of it's it's uh the leviathan which is basically this huge sort of planet-chewing, massive space worm ship that is the palace of a extremely corpulent um, sort of hedonism bot-style space emperor who just wants to invite you to his far too big spaceship to shoot things for his amusement, basically. Mm-hmm. But it shows up in orbit around one of the planets, and it's, it's there on the mission selector, you know, the, the planetary mission selector where it is. But that night when they added it to the game, they also added it to the skybox for that zone. So, and it's absolutely vast. And if you get the sort of ocean willies from, you know, vast cosmic objects, mm-hmm. they just added this thing. And it's almost a horror reveal. As you pan up and you realize that the reason part of the stars are obscured is because there's something moon sized and it's just a mouth like hovering next to the planet. <laughs> and they just did this sort of on the sly overnight with a skybox update. And I love stuff like that because yeah. it is very sort of exciting, but that's the thing you're sort of there for the journey so the, the pressure on a new player now is like accept that you've you know just take the wave of fomo basically like <laughs> yeah. retroactive fomo uh-huh. accept it chew through it get to the current power cap or whatever mm. accept that sometimes you're going to get mission descriptions that are in the past yes you know and and then nothing's going to make sense and then when the next expansion comes out you'll be there with everyone else and it'll be fine you know what i mean it's yeah, like yeah. And that's a really tough ask, I think, particularly as they continue to move mm. things forward, particularly because I really heavily suspect that the next thing will be Destiny 3. Right. This really feels like the the last expansion for Destiny 1 wasn't particularly successful. Mm. This is much better, but it feels quite similar in that it feels like a sort of setting out of stalls ahead of a oh. bigger set of mm. changes. Um, I think that would be my suspicion. I think, I think that ne- this time next year will be looking at Destiny 3, because that would also see, fit the timeline. I, I assume this was a revitalization of Destiny 2 that was meant to keep them ticking along for much longer than a, for that. This is, well, they, they always do a big thing in September. Oh, okay. And so, and for Destiny 1, it was, you know, first year, massive expansion, mm-hmm. second year, smaller expansion, and then the year after that was Destiny 2. And the, the exact same pattern has been followed with Destiny mm-hmm. 2. So maybe the free-to-play thing will change that. Um, and maybe they don't need to blow it up again because they, there were various mechanical reasons and multi-platform reasons why they need to blow up Destiny and redo it. 
because Destiny 1 was locked to the previous generation of consoles as well. Everything they did had to work on 360. Right. So yeah. they, they kind of had to blow the world up and redo it in order to meaningfully move things forward. So maybe they don't need to do a 3, but I, got, I get the feeling that hmm. something of that scale is probably coming, partly because of stuff they're doing with the story as well. But, hmm. but yeah. Um, there's, there's two things. One thing is I think if, if you're interested in the sort of... I don't know if this is of interest to you at all, but um, I think it doesn't get mentioned enough. Destiny's a really very capable um, competitive shooter. Yes, I, I haven't played the PvP yet. Yeah. I really want to... Because I, I, I love playing Halo PvP. Right. And so, yeah. I, I, are there the same modes as Halo? Um, there are some. It's mostly di- it's mostly different, but there are tons. Hmm. So, And there's some Spirit of Halo type things. So there are sort of rotating silly mode playlists like everyone's jumping around with one of those have you have you had a scorch cannon yet which is like a rocket launcher that puts you in third person when you're carrying it no nope. they occur in like open world sort of events and stuff you might get given them for mm. a particular mission or to shoot a tank or something there's a there was a multiplayer mode last week which was just bounding around with them trying to shoot people which is it's a big slow projectile weapon so it's almost tribes like like trying to hit people with them right everyone's so vertically mobile in destiny that standing on the floor is a death sentence and it's very throwaway but you get stuff like that mm. And then you have the core competitive modes, um, of which there are loads. Are there, is there a small team mode? Yeah. Team deathmatch mode? Cause that's, that's, the, yeah, this actually, the well, so most of it boils down to variants on team deathmatch. They've experimented with sort of, um, there's two sort of interesting, they've experimented with variants on sort of CTF style things in the past. But I, I feel like honestly, I, I personally think that this is their mode craft that it's kind of most honed in terms of how to make team deathmatch interesting. Mm. Um, so the, the core one is, control where there are three control points on a map um and when you kill a member of the enemy team the amount of points you get is equal to it's a minimum of one but otherwise it is equal to the number of points your team holds um which is real elegant because it means that there is an uh, an advantage you're never out of generating points but there's obviously an advantage to territory control which means that it's not just a sort of a random melee things actually ebb and flow but also there's logic in that if one team contract captures all three points, it's very likely that the spawns get scrambled. So when people respawn, it actually creates quite a lot of chaos. So there's sort of a, a tactical or strategic thing about trying to hold two points, but not three, unless you think you're going to lose one, in which case you try and cap the other one that can cause it to happen anyway. Like it's, it's really interesting. Um, the mode that is running this week, which is time limited um, just for this week is a variant on that, where when all three modes get, well, all three nodes get captured, uh, they all get locked. So nothing can change. And, um, the, you know, the team that has done that is encouraged to basically hunt the other team for maximum points, but then all three nodes get reset. Hmm. So everything gets, everyone goes back to nothing afterwards. And that's kind of interesting because it creates this sort of tight territory control followed by almost like the kind of asymmetrical, like hide and seek. Like if you, if you, if you, it's, if it's, it's, um, it's basically called the hunt basically when the hunt begins and all three points have been captured, if you're being hunted, it kind of makes sense to try and hide or to avoid fighting. Right. Or if you're feeling cocky, try and kill the enemy team so they're on they're stuck on their respawn timer when they could be running around trying to hoover uh, points. Like those those I love stuff like that. Those little kind of micro decisions that hmm. you can plan around either on your own or with the team and it's good. I did play a sort of co op slash competitive mode. Gambit. Gambit, yes. Mm. So two teams playing their own cooperative games basically. Mm. But the more success you have in your cooperative game means that you can send things over to the other players' cooperative game and Puzzle Bobble. Yeah. Puzzle Bobble, exactly. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Puzzle bubble. <laughs> like, yeah, it, uh, yes, sort of, um, high stakes puzzle bubble. Like, mm. and that has some cool, Gamba has some cool mechanics in it, like, 
at thresholds as you fill this bank. You're basically filling a bank full of moats that you get, moats of darkness that you get from killing space baddies. Mm-hmm. You, you put them in a bank, and then when the bank fills up, you spawn a boss. If you if you kill the boss, you win, basically. Um, but as you reach certain thresholds, a portal opens, which allows you to invade the other team's game as a Dark Souls-style invader and then run around trying to kill them or disrupt their plan. You mm-hmm. get maybe 30 seconds in their territory to try and do something. That is that is its own thing. It's it's super cool. There's a, a genuine meta game that's nothing to do with gear levels or anything like that, and it's just to do with mm. how you approach, you know, how you strategize around timings. And, you know, there's like, you can see at any given time how many motes of light the enemy team is holding that they haven't banked yet. So that is a good time to invade. But if you do it right after they... You know what I mean? So there's like, there's a lot, I don't know, maybe don't need to go into all the granular details, but it's, that stuff's pretty cool to me. Like I like the... Yeah, it's a nice piece of game design. Yeah, um, there's a lot of it. And then there's um, the sort of competitive deathmatch modes, which are sort of 3v3, very tight, um, limited lives team deathmatch, which again, have a completely different feel and cadence because suddenly you can't... Destiny is a game that works both as a sort of fairly strategic peeking around corners, quite lethal shooter, and as a running at each other with magic... <laughs> space magic sort of mm. powers thing which is one of the reasons it's great um I'm trying to think of anything else i wanted to m- mention about it that i think is interesting one thing i thought was interesting bouncing off the discussion that you guys had had about the storytelling is i think i've been thinking about this a bunch recently because i think more games are like this than are not in a way where they end up as this big sandbox full of story that no one is ever going to really experience in the right order unless you really 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 hold people's hands and drag mm. them through it and i completely get where you're coming from when it's, you know, God, I wish, just give me a halo, please. <laughs> like, tell me, <laughs> yeah. tell me a story. Um, but what's interesting about it is I think the lesson they have learned is I, I actually, I, I really like Destiny's world building. And I think they have a lot of smart writers. I think the, the writing is of inconsistent quality, but there's some really love, lovely stuff buried in there. And some of the side fiction and descriptions on things are genuinely nice. And I think unlike a lot of games, they're, they're happy to be playful with form, which a lot of people aren't. So even if you go like, you know, exotic weapon art descriptions, for example, yeah. they each have a big page of text basically associated with them. Sometimes you're going to get uh, an email or emails between, you know, characters or something. Sometimes you're going to get a chat log that is anonymous and you kind of can imply who it is. Sometimes you'll get a gothic story. Sometimes you'll get a poem. Like it's, it really is sort of hmm. very playful with it and, you know, quite evocative and they're very careful to like match certain moods of writing to certain areas of the fiction and and and, you know the game more broadly so you're much more likely to get a certain kind of almost genre of fiction from a certain part of the story than another which helps you stitch together in your mind but also gives it quite a broad feel like all of the this season is very vex heavy the vex of time traveling robots and that gets into very you know if you dig down into that that leads you to a very sort of um sort of high high sight you know hard sci-fi sort of real rigors of simulation theory and time travel and ai mm. stuff i think the thing that that stuff was always there the mistake they made with destiny one was that was all there was yeah and i think what they've learned is you you uh and i think the interesting thing i put it is i think if people are frustrated of games trying to be movies what games like destiny are doing should stand out as at least in a mainstream sense an interesting way of not doing that, which is you tell your movie style Hollywood story through your six hour campaign, right? Between missions, you get some cutscenes, you get some audio bits. It's funnier. It's lighter. And like, so at its sort of top level, as it, as it will be experienced by most people, destiny is space fantasy, right? Big, big nouns, big pyramids, big circles, 
big space ghosts go shoot them the action is sort of fairly cinematic and, and so on it doesn't really rely on cinematics too much but it's you know it's at that level but then as you dig down it becomes far more kind of literary and about kind of this big library of stories that's there to kind of be uncovered as you perform activities and you mm. build out your tome of law but also your own understanding of the world and i think that's a smart way of handling it because it means it's fundamentally sort of interactive at every level it becomes something that people can kind of breeze through but the actual it's kind of like a, a world bible will be produced when people make a film or yeah. a tv show but you won't see it and they this kind of mmo i think when they're successful make a game out of reassembling that law bible in your own brain mm. basically i can understand people would hate doing that yeah i mean I it's, it's also it. the dark souls thing mm, it is yeah dispersed storytelling has the wider law explained why uh the robot lady that i play has breasts does she like wean a roomba at any I point get, uh, i guess not so the robots are people who died and became robots oh okay so that that's the number so some characters have like a number after their name which is how many times so it's like obviously as as the characters in destiny you, you're immortal the notion is you were a robot before you were regenerated by the little ghost and it was a sort of previous way of like consciousness implantation so people would have their consciousness implanted in a humanoid robot body mm. To, I did to, not expect a serious answer to this. Yeah, of course, you asked me. <laughs> so I guess yeah. if your robot bo- robot lady has breasts, it's mm. because she wanted a robot body that somewhat reflected her nostalgic, her, you know, her nostalgic original boobs. form. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I understand that. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's very understandable. Why some of them have horns? That's a bigger question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. No, it's good. I like it. I like how everything sounds and looks. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's crunchy. So Disco Elysium. Yeah, then, talk about Disco know? Elysium. Uh, boy. I mean, there's, I mean, there is something to be said about, uh, in the transition between those two narrative modes, right? I yeah. mean. Right. Yeah. I think, I think they are opposite things in almost yeah. every possible way, mm-hmm. which is itself a kind of segue. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're completely different. And I think, you know, Oh God, I don't know what angle to attack Disco Elysium from. I can't really help with this. But like, it's, you yeah. know, it's like Destiny is like, we're going to be the gamiest game that's ever gamed mm-hmm. and try and do this in the fairest, nicest, broadest, prettiest way we can. But it's 100% game as endless occupation of your brain yes. at a certain level without ever challenging anything above one of the first two characters you meet. In mm. Disco Elysium, basically. Disco Elysium feels like uh, somebody woke up from a mad dream and then spent the next decade trying to exactly recreate it. Mm. Right, yes. I do like it a lot. I like it a lot too. In so- Disco Elysium, you play a cop. Or at least there is some evidence that yeah. at, at some point in the recent past, you were a cop. Mm. However, much of that evidence has been obliterated during a three-day boozing binge uh, which has also caused you to lose your entire memory and recollection of where you are or what you're doing. But it does seem, which is quite a convenient premise mm. for an RPG protagonist. Amnesia protagonists are a sort of staple of the genre. Mm. But in this case, it's, they've really committed to it. You are, um, a lot of the game is about recovering from a terrible, <laughs> terrible period in your life. Yeah. Um, and with how you react to that, whether you apologize for that, whether you break down further, uh, whether you, you know, carry on riding that dragon, uh, are all options to you. Yeah, it's, and it's, it's not just, and, and that's the thing, like, it kind of is a detective game, but it's really detective fiction and games as a framework for essentially a series of 
sort of both questionnaires for you and also sort of acts of, I think, sort of uh, almost showy acts of uh, sort of right way to phrase this it's like it performs like every kind of existential crisis you can imagine in every direction you want to encounter it <laughs> mm. and that's really what it's there for right like it, it is asking it's like a, a sample platter of ways in which to uh struggle to be alive yeah <laughs> like and, I, and, and you are technically that, yeah a lot of that is very very funny but mm, it's, it's also funny. it's incredibly sensitively done like i don't Mm. Uh, you know, I, the, there is a lot of truth in nearly every everything that it does, even when it's sending itself up. There's a, it still feels more like somebody able to laugh at themselves rather than at any point exploiting or laughing at the uh, the crises that your character has undergone. Right, and I think this is really crucial. Like, and I feel like so I almost part of me wants to go deeper, and part of me wants to go back and sort of explain kind of how you interact with it. But we can get to that. Like, it's it could be unbearable. Mm-hmm. what it's trying because you know and i i think i'll be interested obviously it's got really really lavish praise i've seen but i'd be interested to see whether that continues and you know who object to it or not because i think there are some um things about it that are both extremely laudable and put it in uh territory where it's really easy to slip up so you are um an amnesiac rpg protagonist waking up from this three-day bender but you are also a very specific character mm-hmm. it does character creation but uh in its own way and that specific character is a sort of middle-aged, you know, um, uh, highly kind of increasingly decrepit uh, man, white man. And um, one of the most important things it does, I think, is that is not nothing. You are not a blank slate. No. You are that, at least. Mm-hmm. And that, impo- imp- you know, that imposes tons of the things that go on inside you. We, we talked about it on the podcast before, but you're in constant conversation with your own impulses yeah. and your own kind of internal processes. It's... Uh- I got. I know we talked about it before, and I was like, "Oh, that sounds interesting." But um, now, having played it, I really think it is brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> like all, all the skills that you would normally have in an RPG are actually essentially characters that you can have dialogue with, mm. and they have dialogue with each other. So, depending on what points you've put into certain skills, you might be in conversation. You might as a player want something from another character and have failed to get it so far and one of your skills will be like you've got a grovel man you get down on your fucking knees and blab like a fucking baby and then one of your other skills will pass a skill check and say no show some fucking self-respect <laughs> yeah. and that will change the conversation options that are then mm. available to you and it's that's a really interesting i, I mean it, uh, yeah it, it, it's, it's extraordinary. Yeah. yeah, it speaks a lot to, I think, how consciousness works, which is fundamentally quite very interesting. It is. And one thing I love about it is, uh, I feel we're going in lots of different directions with this, but yeah, the, uh, no, it's all good. Like, I love that, um, it's, it's skills aren't just things like, you know, there are things like logic and physical mm. dexterity and, and, and things, but there are sort of things that are resonant ideas that, you, you know, its own, it has its own sort of taxonomy of the consciousness. So my signature skill is shivers, oh, which yeah. is a really interesting one, which is, um, sense of a city or sen- your like sense that. of a city. Mm-hmm. So occasionally you're overcome by a sense of just how cities are and, and what, and like, and this can take the form of, um, your shivers will show up to describe the scene you're in from a much greater distance. Cause you know, it's like two men standing in, in the headlights of a car looking mm-hmm. at something, you know, what does that feel like? And, and I, 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 you know, personally resonate a lot with cities and urban environments and things. And I like them and I find them mm-hmm. so compelling. So I sort of picked it because I was like, this is kind of interesting. Like, and all of these sensitivities 
uh, give you, you know, bonuses to skill checks and things like that in a role playing sense. But each of them is sort of good and bad. If you're, mm. you know, too sensitive, you're overcome by these sorts of senses of the world at the expense of more immediate things. Well, this is the, the brilliant thing about the system because it allows the player to have, or the character to have motivations which are not, mm. which are not only singular. Sorry, they aren't singular at all. There, there's a multiplicity of motivations, all conflicting, and the the player doesn't necessarily get to choose which ones they prefer all the time. Right. It's everything is in conflict. This, this character is conflicted, and that is expressed. Exactly Exactly through the, the way that these different things dialogue with each other. There's a, yeah. I, I picked empathy as my uh, main skill, mm. which turns the game almost into a third person narration because you get to hear that essentially the thoughts of other characters a great deal, I assume, a great deal more than you would mm. otherwise. I've got quite high empathy, so I have the same thing. Yeah. But which is really nice. And there's, there's an, am- an amazing piece of writing where, uh, you uh you have a clipboard and you've only got a shitty blunt pencil and you see that your colleague uh has two pens two beautiful pens and um you can ask him for one and he's he's just really reticent to give you one he he's a quite fastidious character he doesn't want to give you this pen and there's this just a beautiful exchange where you can opt to change your mind and say ah oh, don't worry about it and he won't react at, at all during this. He sort of freezes up and hopes that the danger to his pens just disappears yeah. somehow. <laughs> and then it's not mentioned again, but then there's a little bit of empathy describing how, you know, the danger is passed and he physically relaxes yeah, without, uh, <laughs> without acknowledging it. I think I have a pen. I had a pen at that point. Oh. But it was, it was, a, it was a, 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 a big green pen with a lovely monkey on top. With- <laughs> And, and like, there's a good, I think this is a description with Kim, your, your, your partner, uh, in the same scene, which I think is something like, he's sort of glad that you're getting to work, but it's like a shit covered clipboard and a big pen with a big <laughs> monkey on the top. And it's like, you see, like, do you, again, I had him high empathy. So you see that sort of, you know, you're empathetic enough to realize that he is actually seeing past how ridiculous this is to being slightly pleased. Like it's yeah. kind of like it's, sort of, <laughs> it's yeah, it's it's absolutely incredibly intricate in that way. Very very granular game. Like uh, I don't know how long you've been playing. I think I've been playing eight nine hours, uh, and I, I mm. haven't finished the first day in inverted commas of the game yet. Yeah, man. Um, I, I think I'm maybe four or five, and I'm towards the end of the first day. Oh right, okay. Oh, I see. Speed demon, huh? Yeah, speed run. <laughs> any percent, any percent maximum existential crisis <laughs> um i think yeah the i like it sort of evocative um i like the sense of your sensitivities as faults and as you know mm. as, as benefits um i i love the way that translates and this is something i want to talk about i love the way that translates to your own sort of um uh political alignment i don't know if you've had this much this is something i wanted to talk to you about because um i feel like the game treads quite a dangerous path, I mm. think, uh, because it gives you quite a broad spectrum of political views that you can express. And the thing, okay, so bef- just just to wind back a tiny bit, one of the reasons that this game is extraordinary, and I think partly due to its skill, dialogue, you know, internal mm. dialogue system, is that not really many RPGs allow you to dissemble. Uh, at all like it's often this is the thing that happens a lot in rpgs a character will ask you to do something and you'll be like sure i'll do that and it'll just like 
quest accepted and suddenly you'll have to do it because mm. the game doesn't imagine that the player could speak with any kind of dual motivation mm. or you know a, a, a secondary purpose or lie lying is quite difficult uh, unless mm. it comes up with like lie, lie in brackets yeah. you know it just doesn't happen whereas this game it seems like so many of the answers that you can possibly give are ironic or mm-hmm. they're playful or they're a sign of uh, deep insanity you know yeah and it it's sort of it's sophisticated enough that it can actually articulate things at that level without being jarring or without breaking consistency um but so to go back to what you're saying when i just interrupted and couldn't no, no, co opted um there are options that you can you can be extremely sexist you can agree with other people's sexist views you can uh be quite racist uh, you can completely uh take on uh the the um uh race supremacy's views of another character um whether you do that just to 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 get something get out something of them. out of them or not is sort of up to the player and i, I obviously you are also playing a character. So at one level, I think, you know, uh, Martin of five years ago maybe would have played this game and been like, that's absolutely fine. It's a piece of art. These views can be expressed in the mm. world. You're playing a character. There's, there are many nuances to who you are as a person and who you are as a player, whether that maps perfectly onto the things being said. You're not necessarily a bad racist person if you say these lines of dialogue in a video game. Mm. But... In the current moment, it's it worries me that some players, the deplorables, we might call mm-hmm. them, don't have the sophistication to recognize this as a piece of art and will just see it as validation of their own fucking horror person that they right. are. Right, and this is the issue with all stories like this, yeah. right? Joker just came out. Yes, yeah, yeah. Right, like, there's, there will always be a part, like, this is like, the the disclaimer that should become should come with when well if it worked this way like when you are when you begin to type your mm. novel or movie or game about a uh sort of a, a disaffected sort of uh white man who lives in a society yeah <laughs> it doesn't know where he fits in the society <sighs> it's so um clippy should pop up <laughs> and he should say hey 80% of your fans are going to wildly misunderstand this mm. and that is never going to go away are you sure you'd like to continue? Yeah. And, and so... I don't think it's a moral uh, crime for you to... I don't think no. Joker was a moral crime for Todd Phillips to create. No. But <laughs> at the same time, you have to you have to believe that there are going to be people out there who will not understand it. And I wouldn't have necessarily believed that five years ago. But now mm. we have people who, you know, happily describe themselves as involuntary celibates and think that's yeah, uh, yeah. Some, a rallying like call, you know? Fight Club was the canary in this coal mine, right? Yeah, for sure. But the reason I think Disco Elysium is really interesting... Well, so this is the, that is one issue with Disco Elysium, mm-hmm. I think, is that it acts as this sort of, um, you know, uh, I did this, the interview with Robert Kurvitz that's on our YouTube yeah. channel, and I would recommend not listening to that because he does talk about what the game's actually about. But I can give a sort of, you know, sort of, like, mm-hmm. sense of it, which is that it is sort of about, you know shaping this person right? right this person has emerged from this sort of primordial booze soup and um you know you have a chance to shape them and um you know deciding what kind of person you want to be and part of its cynicism which is also part of its humor is that every direction you choose to go in has hypocrisies and mm. pitfalls and, and holes and, and in its best moments those hypocrisies and pitfalls and the humor come from the fact that ultimately 
the power you have to shape who you are post a disaster like this is actually a tremendous privilege, right? Mm. Like if you were going to wake up with no memory of who you are and no real sense of, apart from despair yeah. and pain, but you happen to be sort of like, uh, you know, white male, a policeman mm-hmm. and, and the, uh, people, you know, the, the, the bar you've wrecked in your bender yeah. will still let you sleep there because they don't want to chase you around for the bill. Hmm. You've, you've won a few lotteries, even if you feel like you're at the bottom. Yeah. And well, it, there are moments where your character recognizes that as well. There are. That's the thing. That's what I'm saying are its hmm. best moments where it sort of, it actually engages with the fact that, uh, you want, this is not the story of someone coming up from the bottom. Mm-hmm. This is someone coming up from a position. Yeah. And trying to deal with, deal with that position. I think, one of its weaknesses, in a sense, is that when we get these sorts of stories, they always do tend to be about the same sort of person in some ways, mm. right? Um, I don't know what, why that is necessarily, um, but there's a, there is a sort of, you know, and I think, I, I, you know, personally, I think this is a really sensitively written example of its kind, yeah. necessarily. Like, if you would compare it to, you know, like, it doesn't, you know, you kind of name yourself at the beginning, but like mm. you, it doesn't, it doesn't, you're not a hero. You're definitely not a, a heroic figure and your pursuit of things. If you choose to go down, you follow your electrochemistry and, and chase sort of booze and, and drugs and sex and things. It doesn't put those things on a pedestal. Like it doesn't go in the sort of, uh, Brett Easton Ellis direction with this yeah. or even the Hunter S Thompson direction with this, mm. which it could go in. Like it doesn't, it doesn't glorify self-destruction. No, it's just, but but self-destruction is absolutely everywhere. Mm. Like some of my favorite moments in it has been, so I've been playing it. I sort of figured, I didn't really know how to approach it. So I just thought, well, I'm trying to kind of embody myself in this because I'm a white man. So I'm just going to sort of, and it's been nice because it's been like being, like being bullied by it. It's been good because at its best <laughs> moments, it can really expose yeah. your the weaknesses in your thinking. Like I have tended to express that I'm not, know if I'm entirely comfortable being a cop. Yeah. Particularly given it, it's, it's, it's important to note that in its fiction, being a detective means something very different than it would connotate in our society. Yeah. Um, for reasons that are quite complicated, but mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, they're not particularly comfortable being a cop, but ultimately I don't want to push people or lie about things. I don't use my authority too strongly. Mm-hmm. But ultimately kind of want to be kind of, you know, ultimately sort of respectful and back off and from conflict and things like that. And eventually my, uh, I think it was my empathy cropped up. I don't know if this has happened to you. And invited me to go on a journey with it to an inner territory that I can't, I, I, I can't remember what it's called. And I'm going to guess, but it's the kingdom of something, but it's, it's like, it's not the kingdom of tomorrow, but it's something like the kingdom of tomorrow. And the idea is that well, your political view is the very slow revolutionary. You would love things to be better, but you you, you understand that real change takes place very, 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 very slowly. Mm. And so you will live forever in the kind of moral high ground, the moralist location of the kingdom of next time, basically <laughs> you will continue to make small, correct moral decisions, but no big choices that will actually meaningfully change things. And you can have this argument with yourself. We're like, well, does that just mean that I support the status quo? And it's like, effectively, yes, but you know, that's not the case or is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, weirdly, I mean, even though I thought I was playing similarly, mm. um, uh, I was accused of being a communist by my, by some parts of my id. <laughs> uh, and I went back and forth. Oh, well, I don't really want to, 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 to be a, a full blown communist. Um, but, uh, then I thought, oh, what would be more fun? I might as well. And they're like, great. Let's, let's get those people into gulags then. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> the, right. the, the, the part of my brain was like too late now. <laughs> so I feel like all of this stuff floats above like an underlying current of like, 
nihilism, which if it was to yeah. dip into completely, it would weaken it. Yeah, this is this is this is the thing I criticize it for. Is uh, it's a problem with these kind of fictions. It's a problem with Joker for sure, but it's also a problem with uh, RPGs. Uh, which stem from Deus Ex mm. uh, onwards, where they provide you with these different choices, but they're desperate to put a sting in the tail of all of them um, and make them roughly morally equivalent by doing so. And I think this game is more nuanced than that. I mean, it's set in a fictional mid-20th century world where there are very, very specific political connotations to yeah. everything. But that being said, it does seem to make sure that nothing is an outright good uh mm. and i feel like i feel like developers or filmmakers this is very true of joker as well and say um feel like they're being even-handed when they do things like well the rich are pretty terrible but you know the poor are basically a raging mob who will tear each other to shreds at the merest side of you know mm. and and they think that's uh, I think that's even, but it's actually a very conservative viewpoint because the only way you can go after you dismiss everybody else's motivations as being impure is into yourself. And the self is essentially the, the, you know, the idol of the conservative. It's, and I, 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 I find that slightly noxious mm. and I wish there was more opportunity for lightness uh, in the kind of choices you're making, or at least some kind of noblesse, you know? Yeah, it's interesting (laughs) that because I think one of the ways that it manages to be effective is that it is hard to help people, which is something that it does as an RPG Mm -hmm. that is, I think, almost a little bit nobler in and of itself than other RPGs. It acknowledges, like, very early on you meet a real shitty kid, just a real shitty kid i would say one of its few flaws i think is the voice acting's really inconsistent Mm -hmm. um and did um, you not like his scouse accent no i do actually he's one of the more effective (laughs) ones in a sense it's not an amazing scouse accent i don't think but it's like um but it is in the territory like oh for fuck's sake and it actually like there are some moments with that that are genuinely uncomfortable even when you're trying to do the right thing like Mm -hmm. if you particularly if you fail the empathy check to try and just figure out what's wrong with him. Like, you know, whether he's having trouble at home or anything like that in a particular, in a very adult, like I just, you know, I'm, I refuse to be bullied by a kid who's throwing, hurling abuse at me, but I do care enough to want to try and figure something mm-hmm. out. And he starts screaming at you that, Oh, you're a pedophile and you've come to get him. And, and he starts to back away, but in a theatrical way. And he's using every trick to make you uncomfortable and to try and assert dominance over you. Mm-hmm. And you have to hold back your, desire to hit him which comes up and you suppress it and then he calls you on it because he figures it out and you can you can say no i didn't think that or yes i did or how do you know that i felt that way and if you say that he says something like adults always do Hmm. and it's like you get these little shades of what's actually happening but in a situation where it becomes profoundly uncomfortable to try and do what with any other rpg would be the paragon thing yeah yeah. like reach out to the shitty goblin or whatever Hmm. like um that it doesn't work and it's sort of imperfect and you kind of, you know, bimble on from it. That I think is, is very effective. I do think it's got an interesting thing in that, you know, I came up with the thing of like, you know, do you consider yourself an individualist or not? And one of the interesting thing is like, it encodes a certain individualism because one, you're, you know, creating this character mm. and because you're in interior, you know, you, you, you equip thoughts, you know, a big part of your inventory is what <laughs> thoughts you're having. Yeah. And having over a very long period of time, just these things ticking along in the background. Right. And, and maybe this comes back around to being clever, but like you cannot play this game and not be somewhat obsessed with your interiority. Yeah. And I would argue that that stands slightly opposed to a kind of purely kind of a, a, a ideologically pure collectivism. 
but that is kind of the problem mm. in life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so that is in itself of itself something. I think the, the thing about it is I would, it's funny how the game feels, I think it feels absolutely phenomenally crafted and beautifully made. Mm. But, and I think it is, I, but the question I would ask you is, do you feel like it's radical? Because, and not in a cool skateboard trick kind of sense, because I think the radical version of this game would be where you were answering these questions, but it wasn't teaching you about what it's like to be a middle-aged man who is a police officer who's had a huge bender, but it was teaching you what it was like to be a woman in that society or a person of color in that society, to be the victim of the racism you see rather than uh, have the the privilege of neutrality Mm. or the privilege of a quote-unquote blank slate. Like yeah. that, that feels yes. like the radical version of this game, right? Where yeah, you, yeah. Where, or where you're not physically imposing and therefore mm. you don't have to fear for your safety. Well, I, I I used uh, physicality as my dump stat. So I actually had a heart attack in the first scene trying to pick up my necktie <laughs> and I had to restart. Oh no, did um, you die? Yeah, full up fucking died. <laughs> uh, I also uh, kicked a furnace later on and died. <laughs> But um, you can you can save scum these things, thankfully. So, <laughs> um, yeah, and there are a few instances I think where it sort of it wanders because it's set in a, as you say, like a fictionalized mm. world, but one where it's it, very recognizably influenced by our own, though, especially yeah. linguistically. I'm really so the the guy you spoke to was the the lead writer on it. Yeah, and uh, sort of creative he, lead here. Yeah. He has a phenomenal grasp of languages. Yeah, it's, I think the, what was interesting is it crosses over with our world in lots of key ways. This world also has communism. It also has fascism. Mm-hmm. It also has hepatitis. Like it has mariachi it, music. Has, yeah, exactly. It has disco. <laughs> um, and, um, and there's a moment, but I think there are moments where the crossover you can't totally ignore. So, and, and it's kind of a tricky position to be in, but you know, this is also a world where being white carries a certain amount of privilege. Right. Yes. Which I think is responsible of them. They can't really do like a reverse racism planet. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, well, they do Star have Trek. that guy, uh, a character who is a right. race supremacist who is a black guy. That's a what I'm building s- to. Is he Seminese? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Carry That's on. what I'm building to right. because it does a thing which I, it, it delivers you two racist characters very close proximity to each other. Yeah. And mm. I think it's interesting how it handles them because I thought the first encounter, which I think is the one that came up in a bunch of previews, mm. is pretty effective you you meet a racist truck driver yeah who's racist to your partner who's racist to your partner your partner lays into him mm-hmm. and you navigate a web of potential responses most of which are fuck-ups of, of interesting array of kinds mm. you can over overly defend your partner in a way that demeans and disempowers them yeah you can you know you can perform your status as an ally of of your partner in a way that again distracts you can side with the racist, which has its own obvious, obvious set of issues. You can, you can walk away because you can't handle it, mm. which is, or you can feign naivety. Like, why are you angry with each other? And so, you know, there's like the only, the way I handled it was to sort of be like, you know, to be in that case, the professional who then pins this person to the wall and asks them loads of questions and lets my partner have their moment. I don't know if that's a hundred percent right, but it's mm. like, you know, the, it challenges you to find this sort of kind of imperfect way through a very believable situation. And then the encounter you have immediately after that, and this isn't isn't a spoiler, but like Mm. it's uh, another character who embodies a bunch of positions that we might encounter in real life. It's a character who basically evinces a combination of like race war, paranoia and eugenic theory. Yeah. Basically. Um, but this character happens to be a physically imposed, a physically imposing black character called Measurehead. Called Measurehead, whose physical, you know, whose 
the fact that they're physically imposing is key to their role in this particular moment. Yeah. You'd like to get past them and you can't. And I feel like in that moment that actually it doesn't, I mean, and I would absolutely cede to someone else's more expert analysis on that. It doesn't strike me as particularly elegant because it takes, mm. it takes a bunch of tropes about, you know, like, you know, black physicality and so on from our world and embodies them. But it takes a bunch of sort of, uh, real racism, you know, from our world and puts them in, in a, in a different place. Yeah. And it's and interesting. It's, uh, you, you, even though the names of the nations and peoples he's talking about are different because they're fictional, mm. you can see that they map quite directly onto <laughs> existing races mm-hmm. and people. Um, although I, I, I think there's quite a lot of, um, an interesting level of hatred he directs to people who eat potatoes, which is quite funny. Yeah. Um, right. But yeah, there are moments in it where and that, that, that's a rare conversation and it's fully voice acted. Normally the start, yeah. of, the start of a conversation is voice acted and the rest is just text. That one is fully voice acted and it's, it's interesting. Like I, I, I'm not raising it as like, this is definitely like for me, it felt like a weak link in the start of the game because, because also the decisions I was being asked to make felt more cartoonish in a way. Mm-hmm. Like it's asking you in one part, whether you want to try and stand up to the physical challenge being posed by this person as he calls you weak. Mm. The other part, I would it, not survive that. I can't no, the next your time. Heart give out. Like the other part of it is, do you pretend to subscribe to his ideology? Do you actually subscribe to his ideology? Mm. But um, his ideology is explicitly extremely cartoonish. It's expressed in all caps. Mm. And there are kind of like non sequitur jokes about potatoes, like in it. Like, well, I guess he's meant, I mean, is that to make him clearly a point of mockery, right? Right. But to make it, it impossible for you to not along with him. It's also sort of heavily accented in its all caps. He's also a foreigner by the sound of, the, you know what I mean? It's, mm. a, it's, it's just, a, it's. Well, is he? There's some interesting stuff right, about the Right. But he's not, but nation. it's like, yeah, yeah one yeah. thing you can get out of him is that he may, he might be feigning how, foreign he actually is oh really oh i didn't get that oh point. sorry maybe that's my spoiler he's actually know. from revachol like he's oh. he's local but he's this is a a thing huh. it's clever but that's an i think that's a an instance of a time where and as we are picking nits at this yeah, point yeah. but like that's a point where i think the game's cleverness and its intricacy of kind of constructing you know pretty resonant questions out of fictional parts i think gets the better of it i think that's an example of two not too clever but sort of hmm. it loses some of the heart of that situation in a kind of a sort of ad hoc philosophical debate with a cartoon yeah which doesn't feel quite right given that this is a game where you can talk to a bin <laughs> yeah like the the one of the thing it succeeds at is that the human characters always have layers beyond hmm. the sort of the exterior and this is an example where it, it just doesn't feel like it do sufficient credit and they also step into a bunch of quite sensitive territory yeah and I think that maybe that's the danger with it. Like, and it's the danger with the sort of the fact that this is the, the sort of the pilgrimage of one big portly middle, middle aged dude trying to discover himself, which is mm-hmm. a kind of story that, as we've said, can be done so uncritically that I think it has to fight a little bit extra hard to prove that it's not in that yeah. territory. Yeah. I think it, lo- I mean, from what I've played anyway, it largely exonerates itself. Mm. It's just. Uh, yeah, there are little fears I have as I play it. But, you know, maybe these are, maybe there isn't really moral hazard in this. Maybe that's just my imagination. I, I don't really know. I think, I think it's, I would say moral hazard probably, it's, it's more that I think it's a really extraordinary bit of writing. Yeah. And a really extraordinary bit of game design. I think the thing I would hazard is like, um, this is not the only story you can tell with that. Mm-hmm. And I think, and maybe this is a bit, uh, I might be, I might be, 
oh, I was going to say wanking off the deep end here, but um, <laughs> like, is that why you're banned from the municipal pools? It, it is. Um, <laughs> it's um, uh, that was the end of my three day bender. No, the um, the um, it's it feels like uh, we live in a society, Marsh. No, um, the um, it feels like a game that. It's extraordinary in and of itself. And one of the reasons it's extraordinary is because it, it, it does come from a place outside of traditional game development, like Studio Zalm or mm-hmm. essentially an Estonian art collective that have decided to make a game. Yeah. And it stems from a particular tradition. I know that the setting was developed over about 10 years. Mm-hmm. It was a pen and paper role playing setting for the people that. involved. Like it feels very have personal. Have you found, found the thinly disguised game studio, which is obviously them? Uh, not yet. <laughs> Um, have a look around for that this uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> right so well, it's weird. actually i mean just mm, go for it. i looked at their their website uh to try and find out about some uh credits writing credits it's very difficult to pick up writing credits actually from their website which mm. but um you can look at their dev blog and i went inarticulately i could only click on either the first page or the very very last mm. page which is obviously the first time they ever posted mm. about the game and they describe it as a short form RPG. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Wow, yes. <laughs> um, what I was going to say is I, I believe, I understand having met some people involved that it, mm. it really comes from a genuine, a very genuine place. And that mm. it, not that that ultimately matters. Um, but, but that also it comes from a place outside of games in, a, right. in an interesting way. It obviously is very game literate, but it's, you know, it is not, um, necessarily a product of quite the same culture and and it is in some cases a response to that culture and, and a response to um you know culture more broadly and the kinds of questions that culture can ask i think it does so successfully however the particular story that they've chosen to tell and the character they've chosen to tell it about feels like it feels like catnip to the corpus of games critics mm-hmm. and its majority oh yeah it's, i mean it's definitely working right <laughs> and as two as two white men who are sat here enjoying <laughs> A lovely glass of boozy whiskey while talking about it. I, I kind of want to be conscious of being totally won over by it on that basis. Yeah. And I don't want to, like, this isn't supposed to be shady or anything, but I'm not entirely, I feel like I've seen the hand of that kind of dazzle in some of the reviews it's been receiving. And I think it deserves mm-hmm. very, very high reviews. But I think the reasons for that are a little bit more technical and a bit more to do with the artistry of the thing than necessarily its significance as a story. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, because, I, know, I agree. Like, I but think although the- I don't know that you could have that same in, internal system with uh, a character who wasn't undergoing mental crisis. I think it, of course, just yeah. the, that, the histrionic kind of level at which it operates wouldn't, you couldn't make this, you couldn't yeah. just strip out all of that stuff and say, here, players, make your own RPG in this system. I don't think as no. successfully. No, know? but what I mean is, the other thing is, I think, you know, there is, there's plenty of work going on in, like interactive in interactive fiction twine and so mm. on that explores internal territory and decision making mm. and so on from a variety of uh positions often that are not this one you know one of its almost like i feel like the fact that it is you know you see it get described like it's a detective game and like yeah kind of kind of it is it is but it is it you know what i mean it's sort of like <laughs> the the cop the cop yeah. game element is what gets you in the door and i suspect it what gets you in the door if you're a publisher as well it's like yeah. it's a way of there's a crime what has been done and crime you must what find done. out about it and you know it's it's playful with that and necessary with Although that but weirdly like, the trailer didn't mention really anything about that so right. i mean <laughs> but it's like this is the thing like the 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 there's a nor of we actually really yeah <laughs> 
like <laughs> no we we haven't either but that's the point right like there's i think it almost its weakest element is it's uh you know i think i saw i think it was it might have been andy kelly's review for pc game pointed out that like, if you want to make you know if you want to make a kind of genius sherlock type detective with a crippling you know floor mm-hmm. you can do that and that's that is true but it feels like genre is it's like almost it's a Achilles heel in a way or like it's funny or like I don't even think that necessarily is the fault of the developers so much it's like mm. the fault of games that we almost need this sort of structural imposition yeah. and we expect the the white dude protagonist and all the rest of the stuff that like I would I would fucking I, I would I actually would genuinely love to play an Uncharted game but with this degree of interiority <laughs> like man slowly falls off train <laughs> yeah. while having an argument with himself about whether, aren't trains beautiful <laughs> And then you choose to cry. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you can apply this as parody. One, of the, one thing we should keep going back to is a very funny game to almost anything. I'd apply this to Halo, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, just Master Chief crippling fucking hangover. The Covenant here. <laughs> you know, it works, but it's almost like the step beyond this, I think, is applying this degree of using this mechanism. Because this mechanism, this is what I'm trying to get at. I'm rambling, but this mechanism is so fucking good at putting you in the head of a character Mm. and having you experience what they experience. And in this case, it is effectively being used appropriately to shame. Mm. Right. It's like you are a fucking mess and you have all of this power and privilege and you're self-obsessed and every direction leads to being a dick because of that fact. Essentially, that is the sting in the tail of everything. I would love to see this degree of, uh, that degree of sensitivity and clever writing and interiority applied to a game about elevating a perspective we don't often see. Sure. You know, like, it, you know, the, the version of Disco Elysium where you wake up and you're Kim. Mm, yeah. Is, I mean, like, I kind of think that's why they had to have Kim it is. there because he is, I mean, in as much as any of the things going on in your head are characters, he is also a character. Yeah. Uh, I love the know. little snippets of his actual personality that you start to get, yeah. but yeah. But he's a really, really well-written character he as is, well, because yeah. you think immediately he's going to be the sidekick stereotype mm. and kind of fastidious and by the rules. And he is sort of fastidious and by the rules, but there is a real person underpinning mm. those actions. It's good. Yeah, it is. I mean, and yeah, I'm pretty, I've wanged on a lot, but it is really fucking good. Mm-hmm. It is really fucking good. I think it's the same thing you would apply to like certain kinds of prestige TV. Yeah. Right. You like you think about like rack up all your favorite prestige TV in your head and think about how many of them are about a man having a real severe midlife crisis, mm. and suddenly you've got Madman Breaking Bad and The Sopranos like lining up to kind of make some of the same points mm-hmm. as each other. And I just, I just yeah. love a, a, the game I, a, where you can knowingly lie to yourself. That yeah. is a really subtle thing to ex- mm. express in an RPG dialogue system. It doesn't. Mm. Thus play I in one person many people, and none contented. That's uh, a little coin of Shakespeare for you there. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Nice. It made me think of, um, no, I'm not getting into that. <laughs> <You can. laughs> no. Um, I've, I've already broken the pretentiousness barrier now. We yeah. can go the whole way. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing is like, this is um, like a genuine discourse that you then have in your head, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. like my fucking degree just cropped up and went, <laughs> you could mention Whitman. And then it went, oh, no, I'm not going <laughs> to. Don't, don't silence the twat within you, Chris. Yeah, exactly. I'm thinking about Orton Marsh. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, but I think that's the thing, like, It'll be, yeah, I'm really fascinated to see what the, for once, actually, and this is a huge testament to the game, I am genuinely interested to see what, what the discourse does with it. Yeah. Because I think, 
I think there is a rebuttal coming. I think you can't deny its technical prowess. I think you can question yeah. some of its well, positioning. It'll be a but. criticism, right? Rather than a, uh, I hope it will be a criticism rather than a, um, a backlash. Right, but this, but we live in a society. Right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we live in a society yeah. that's partially fueled um, by your ability to make people click on a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so actually, writing is bad else. is yeah. going to be a thing someone writes. Someone's going to write it. Yeah. And I'm only eight hours in, so maybe it is absolutely terrible. Fucking nose <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can't. Yeah, yeah, I can't believe you release all the nanomachines at the end. <laughs> <laughs> Our inspector was right all along. <laughs> exactly. Um, if there is a yeah, no, I'm not getting into that. Like, if you you know actually have a fist fight with your own esprit de corps or something, then <laughs> yeah. actually that's brilliant. Actually, I would like to give a shout out to esprit de corps. It's a very good skill description. I mostly ignore its advice. <laughs> right. So esprit de corps is your sense of what cops might be doing mm-hmm. at any given time. And if you have reasonably high esprit de corps, you actually see what's happening in your police station as they laugh yeah. about you. Yeah, but that's is, a really beautiful scene. It is beautiful. I, I, I want, shouldn't say what happens no. with it, but it's... Yeah, it's, you think it's going one direction, it's not really. That is one of its strongest elements, I think, actually. like I know that you know people have been more critical recently about games about police. Mm-hmm. basically and the sensitivity involved in doing that um i think that's that'd be one thing i would say totally if that is something that potentially makes you uncomfortable but disco elysium the fact that you know you're a cop you're mm. a hard-bitten cop who's woken up after one too many juice drinks yeah. and now he's got to solve the big crime <laughs> it undermines that absolutely yeah. and it's well also are you really a cop i mean are, yeah. is anybody really a cop in that place is another question yeah right but nonetheless that but the, it's uh it yeah, that the the phoning back to the police station scene is fucking yeah. incredible. In fact, but, there's, there's so many moments where it seems like it's uh, going for maybe a cruel laugh, or there's some kind of uh, humor that is overriding the scene, and then it turns on a penny and delivers something which is deeply empathic and sensitive yeah. and really disarming. And it's, it's, that's happened quite a few times where it's I've just been yeah. laughing out loud for the most part, and then something happens, you go like, "Oh wow, okay." Do you know what? Do you know what makes a kind of interesting felt moved momentary? kind of counterpoint to this that just occurred to me no tell me creatively they're completely different but there are a few things mechanically that i thought would be would be interesting fleabag okay have you seen all of fleabag i've watched as much of it that i can take which was maybe about 10 minutes okay <laughs> i don't deal well with cringe comedy and there's a lot i don't know i wouldn't cringe. see cringe, fleabag as cringe comedy interestingly there's a scene where she accidentally takes off her jumper and exposes her yeah. bra to a person that she's trying to get a loan out of. That, that is scene true. is very embarrassing. Right. And it has a huge, it just continues to pay off in a really interesting way. Oh, really? Yeah. That, <laughs> okay. that whole show is genius. And one of the reasons it's genius is it has this meta element of her talking to herself, right. talking to the camera, talking mm-hmm. to you. And it plays with that relationship in a really, really interesting way. And so I'm saying this now as someone who's played six hours of Disco Elysium. I feel like that's one of the ways it, like, I don't know, escalates and it sort of exceeds itself is by addressing its own structure. I don't want to, like, if you haven't watched all the feedback, feedback's genuinely brilliant. Mm. And it, uh, in both the first and the second season, um, has some really brilliant flourishes that, yeah, it has a conversation with itself that is as compelling as the story, which is kind of mm. a real trick. And I think the Disco Elysium is kind of an interesting interestingly similar place in a way um uh and interesting i would, I would totally play the flea bag game in this engine <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um the one thing i wanted to say about esprit de corps which led to a very good moment um is for some reason i needed to do a jump 
which felt looked very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, and the skill that is being checked, there are skill checks. We didn't talk about that at all. Well, most of the gameplay is, <laughs> but never mind. There are some mechanics there. The, the skill that is being checked is your esprit de corps in this moment. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, I, see. I just assumed it was some, uh, physical more, thing. No, more physical for some reason, your ability to do a cool jump. Is that's a, that's a, that's about your vague sense of what a policeman might do. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which sort of works. Um, but I realized that um, um, I wanted to try and game this because I wanted to succeed. So I, I realized that both my shoes and my trousers were applying a negative um, a, a penalty to esprit de corps. So for this skill check only, I took my shoes and trousers off <laughs> and then failed. Which involved sort of like teetering on the edge of this sort of ledge, like my uh, like filthy underwear <laughs> flapping in the breeze on a rooftop, and I realised that the game had accidentally constructed a completely, completely appropriate moment of like you know Kim stands there and doesn't refer doesn't try ask me to explain why I've just taken my <laughs> yeah. trousers off in order to do a jump, but <laughs> but it's like yes. these trousers make it harder for me to think of myself as a policeman, so I have to take them off. <laughs> <laughs> is is yeah. both completely unlikely and also deeply relatable. I had to put on a dirty vest to yell into a furnace. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, you think you're just going to shout up it, but he unleashes this bestial roar from deep within himself. <laughs> have you? Um, have you? Did you choose to um, reassure or um, berate the postbox? Oh, I reassured it. Yeah. <laughs> I have a strong connection with yeah. inanimate objects, both in this in this world and in the game. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's got a face sort of yeah. I can't I can't be mean to it. <laughs> so one final thing I would I was wanted to point out about Discovery about how I've been playing it, even though even though I sort of click on everything and go through and talk to everybody, it has been successful and I would be interested to know if this is the case for you, at naturally making me happy to leave some conversations without every option picked. Happy mm. to walk away from some conversations, uh, happy to not take every option or accept every mission given or do everything that I put on my task list. Like one of my tasks is find some cigarettes and I've decided not to. Right. And I, and that is in a word role playing, right? <laughs> not, <laughs> yeah. you know, this is the opposite of destiny. This is not task completion. This is actually choosing what my character would and wouldn't do. Have you found that, that you are not... Because in a traditional RPG, you would yeah. rinse the dialogue trees, right? I would started doing that, but I've been slowly stopping doing that for the reasons you mentioned. Just I'm just choosing to ask about the things I'm really interested in mm-hmm. or express myself in the ways that I feel my character is going. Right, cool. Yeah, because that, that, that I think is also to its huge um, credit. Like not a lot of, of role-playing games achieve role-playing. And this mm. one definitely, definitely, definitely does. But I understand that you've been doing some role playing of your own recently. I have some pen and paper role playing. Would Very you like to about- guess what race I'm playing, Chris? Goblin. Yes. <laughs> uh, weirdly, uh, I listened to the podcast in which you accused me of being a goblin after I'd already chosen to be a <laughs> really? goblin. Really? Yeah. Have you listened to the D and D podcast we did? Uh, yes, I have. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, well, it's obviously my natural role. Yeah. Um, exactly. I can't believe they didn't figure out where I was going with the environment called the Goblin Marsh. <laughs> Like for four hours of that session, I'm proud of them, but also <laughs> ashamed at the same time. Anyway. Yeah, I'm playing, um, a, a game called Simba Rome. Maybe Simba Rome. Simba Room. Not quite clear how it's pronounced. Spelling in the show notes. Yes. Um, 
It's a it's a it's a cool cool world. It's basically. I mean, it's not that different from. We live in a cool world, Marsh. (laughs) (laughs) Your staple fantasy RPGs, except that it's obviously quite a dark fantasy, and it's sort of. What would be the consequences of a, a debilitating war against an all-powerful force of darkness? Mm. Uh, it's sort of like what would really happen after the Lord of the Rings, which is that there would be a fuckload of refugees from the lands that are just being completely decimated by mm-hmm. goblins. or Sorry, orcs. Not in this case, though. There aren't. The goblins... <laughs> Don't apologize to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Giant Nation has had a war with the forces of darkness... Uh, that land is now basically a dead land, and they've had to move uh, over these mountains back to the site of where their 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 people originally came from, only to discover that the site of where their people originally came from is also more or less a dead land for reasons that are not quite clear. And much of it has been overtaken by a gigantic forest called Davakar, and uh, the forest is slowly waking up and mm. repelling uh, these new colonists. And so there's an interesting sort of, uh, thing about colonization there, which is quite interesting and written into the very fabric of mm. not only the law, but also the, um, the mechanics of the game as well relate to sort of betraying nature or not betraying nature to a certain mm. extent. And it's, uh, and nature isn't necessarily a force of good in this case either. But it's it's very. I mean, I fucking love it. I fucking love role playing. I love being it's the a best, goblin. Isn't it? I'm a little goblin grave digger. <laughs> of course, you fucking are. Uh, yeah. First, I, role, everyone's first proper role playing character is make themselves. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and you know, like myself, I'm also haunted by the uh, the ghost of my former master, uh, <laughs> and I wait screaming every night. Um, <laughs> Owen, and I love strangling people. <laughs> Uh, love it or good at it i'm just really good at it to okay. be honest. it's just uh well, it's good to love yeah. what you do <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh i don't think anybody else knew in the group that i had the strangling skill so they were slightly confused by why i kept on <laughs> leaving on people and trying to strangle them <laughs> rather than doing more obvious forms of attack <laughs> there was a logic to it but it's uh yeah it's, it's really interesting and the I, I, I didn't know if you'd ever heard of it. I was wondering. I haven't if actually. You... Well, so I think because you're, you're playing with Jim, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah Jim right. So I think I think I'd seen some tweets about it. I think I seen Jim mm. tweets about it. But other than that, I knew nothing about it. It feels quite. Uh, it's very combat oriented. Mm. Um, uh, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of uh, the, the social stuff. Is feels quite improvisational and quite loose. Um, there are kind of skills you can use to twink, to tweak your success in social situations. And, but it, most of the kind of skills, combat is so deadly that you'd be foolish to not focus to some extent on mm. just min-maxing your singular combat abilities, which is fine, but it's quite difficult to work out from the from the books how one does that there's a lot of stuff about juggling stats and so you 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 put skills into you put points into skills which then allow you to kind of do a dice roll against one particular stat rather than another so you can then sort of rather than having all these different dice rolls in different situations against a wide variety of skills you can focus them all into your stat that you're putting all your points into you see what i mean um but the the manuals are fucking insane like, there doesn't seem to be any kind of order to them at all. Man. It's really difficult to work out. Like, I tried to... So, 
I, I'm, I'm an alchemist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to be able to make potions. Uh, and I thought, well, okay, it would be a good idea just to write down all the potions that I can make. It's novice level. Yeah. To do that, I need to reference six different places oh, in man. two different books. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite a task. I didn't bother to do it. Right. Like, this is the thing. Um, ease of access to the rules you actually need is, like, one of the great tricks of, of pen and paper. Like, I don't want to speak for Pip, but, like, I think Pip had... So Pip ran a really, really fun game of uh, a game called uh, Bubble Gumshoe at mm. Shucks, which is a sort of teen detective role-playing game. So mm. Veronica Mars or Nancy Drew mystery oh, yeah. kind of thing. Um, and Pip had GM before or, like, run a rule system before. And it's amazing how difficult... Oh, how, how rarely I think games effectively express, I think, the truth of most pen and paper role-playing systems, which is that they are sandboxes, not a kind of prescribed set of things to follow. And when the rules and the essential kind of rules are mixed in with the kind of pre-existing lore or with pre-baked scenarios and things, that's like, this is a bad analogy, it's like spreading the the sand for your sandbox around a sculpture garden and you have to go find the sand before you're allowed to kind of make your own thing. Uh-huh. Like not a good analogy, Marsh. I warned you ahead of time. Didn't really work. That's fine. But we can all move on now. Um, my analogy, my inner analogy sense is like screaming at me. (laughs) Um, like I'd be interested when you say this is super combat heavy, like why are you engaging in combat? Is it to progress the story or is it like, is it loot heavy? Is it character building? Is it, it's a very dangerous place. I see. Is, I mean, there's narrative reasons for it to be uh, dangerous. I mean, I'm, I'm sure uh, Jim as a, a GM could just reduce the amount of combat in mm. it. But since most of the book is about yeah. combat, it's, it would it would feel like you weren't engaging with uh, the role-playing game systems. No, that's that's interesting. Because like, um, I find combat is often the thing that's hardest to make interesting. Mm. So have you found it edifying? Yes, but it takes a while because because the systems are so opaque and it's very difficult to put together the ways in which you are meant to be mm. fighting. And there are lots of little rules that aren't necessarily obvious that are hidden on, for no real good reason, page 153, far away from anything else that might right. relate to it, that uh, the first session we found it incredibly difficult. Like uh, two of us almost died in one of the kind of tutorial combat sessions. Um, but I think as we get into it, uh, apparently the, the, the players generally speaking find that the opposite is true, that it's quickly possible to create characters who are almost unkillable and overpowered. Um, so. You made a goblin gravedigger who strangles people. <laughs> <laughs> well, strangling is really good. It doesn't, you know, uh, once you get your bony little goblin fingers around somebody's neck, what are they gonna fucking do? Nothing. Uh, <laughs> Ever again. <laughs> Only sleep. <laughs> Shh. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how the combat will bed down over some sessions. It does seem like there's all kinds of uh, power disparities. It feels very much like somebody decided to create their own set of rules for their, you know, uh, off-brand D and D game mm. and span that out into a book. I think that's how most of these things start. But of course, but I don't necessarily know that they've. It applies more widely to mm. how other people might play those same set of rules. Like, it mm. feels like it's been designed very well for certain classes and certain characters, and then you wonder quite how the other things fit together, and maybe they don't at all. Hmm. That's cool, though. Um, I don't know if, do you remember our Numenera campaign? I do. I, very, I, I, I remember it very fondly. I wish, uh, I wish we'd seen it through, really. We, but. I've been thinking about rebooting that for a long time, <sighs> but moving everything forward, but yeah, because I like that system, and I like that world as well. But that was my, that was my first time GMing. 
Hmm. Yeah. No, it has a similar thing to uh, Numenera where you can spend XP in the moment. Yeah, you know? I like stuff like that. And I think that, would, I think that is a good innovation. Mm. I try to add stuff like uh, House Rules a lot. I've, I've, uh, I've talked about it on the pod before, but this Star Wars campaign, which is now three years old. Yeah. Which is nuts. Like, there's nothing actually better in games than a RPG group that keeps going. Because, hmm. um, and I'll tell you, like, the, the payoff is absolutely short. When, when players get sufficiently invested that you have to do less as a GM and they understand the world, like, I had a, uh, my, my players include, um, Dave Jackson, you might know cool. much from PlayStation Access and, and, um, uh, our friend Will Salmon. And the last session we had, we had a conversation where the two, like, normally if something is, they try to figure out the feasibility of luring a ship to a particular location. Like based on what's possible with hyperspace communication in the Star Wars universe. Hmm. And normally this would be a question of maybe not a character question. Like, what do I know about how, you know, ship to ship communication across vast distances works? Yeah. And, but we've entered this point in year three now where the two of them had this entire conversation in character and were right about all of the technology and didn't need me at all. <laughs> like they, they figured out it wouldn't work for various reasons or it right. wouldn't be reliable based on just years of experience of the setting oh, wow. and didn't need me. And it was the best moment. Like it was just the best feeling of like, holy shit. Like we're now in this like <laughs> yeah. particular mindset. Like we've arrived at an understanding of how the technology of this universe works hmm. where I don't have to, we don't need rules. We don't need to roll a dice. We don't need to look something up in the book. We just get it. Like this is, hmm. you know, and particularly because they were denying themselves a plan as well. Like they had this particular plan to achieve something and they're like, no, this won't work. Not for, Oh, we'll never roll the right number or Chris won't allow it. But, oh, well, actually we could ping and ping and ping and ping, but there's no guarantee that we'll have a timescale for when they'll arrive. And that actually is not very useful to us because we're trying to ambush this ship and therefore it's not a good idea. Right. And it's like, shit. Yeah. Great. <laughs> I'll, I'll, like it's, it's the best, honestly. Yeah. I did, um, I did a bunch of pen and paper role playing while I was out at Shucks hmm. that, um, I might quickly draw attention to. Um, one, uh, so I did a bunch of one shots, obviously, cause it's a convention. You just sign up for things. Both were for uh, relatively new systems, both of which I thought were kind of interesting and maybe worthy of a shout out in this mid podcast pen and paper role playing section that we're now doing. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, one of them was a game called Collateral Damage, which I think is either has been kickstarted or is going to be kickstarted or has been and is coming out soon. I'm not sure. It's by a, a, a guy called uh, Daniel Salcedo. Um, apologies, I'm pronouncing that wrong. Uh, but he ran the game for us. Very much a sort of passion project of a couple of years, I think. But the premise, which I really like, is it's a pen and paper role-playing game which is designed for one-shots. You generate your characters and the setting every time you play. Right. Um, and the the concept is that you are uh, – your the world you live in is a movie, um, but you and the other players are extras in the movie. Hmm. The movie is happening around you. It's not what your own story is necessarily about. But as part of you, you – in addition to sort of generating your characters, you also generate – uh, the setting and the genre of the film. So when I played it, it ended up being a Western, uh, that was always a, also a coming of age story, uh, that the GM titled, uh, when cowboys become cowmen. Um, <laughs> um, so it was this sort of breakfast club sort of, um, but it, it, it became a Western, but it was more of a modern Western. So it's set in like rural Colorado in the eighties. Uh-huh. Um, and then you also randomize like what each of the three acts of the movie are actually about. So the first part was about a murder. So it's like the star football players been murdered and you know, hmm. but this is a cow town. Like who could have done it? 
And um, that was actually uh, genuinely fun, kind of dice light and rules light, but mm. really fun for your, your only goal as players is to survive the film because you could right. equally get a superhero movie and you're, you know, the buildings falling down around you, but your objective is just to get to work on time. Like this kind of thing. And that was, that was really fun. The other one uh, I did, um, <laughs> was, um, uh, I, I played in that one, I played an evil piano player called Clammy. <laughs> Clammy. <laughs> yeah. And then myself Clammy. Um, and his, uh, his, uh, character flaw was that he always played the wrong music at the wrong time. Um, so when we discovered the body of this teenager who'd been murdered or, or the crime scene was happening, we were in the background, I just started playing all of like the prom end of prom hits I could think of. Um, <laughs> like, you know, like hope you have a time of your life, like that kind of thing that like <laughs> this teenager would never hear. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, and then the other one I played, uh, was, and I'm unfortunately, I, I remember, remember the handle, uh, which was, uh, Socrates of the creator, but not his full name, which is bad podding of me but i'll give you the link mm -hmm. but it's a variant on blades in the dark which i know jim oh, yeah. likes mm. uh, called neon black which is basically cyberpunk blades in the dark oh, basically using okay. the same system so there's there's a sci-fi one as well what's that called i can't remember okay right <laughs> um the, yes. this is i think very much a homebrew um, ah, okay. i think it's actually available through itch at the moment um but i really liked it and uh, that was a lot of fun because blades in the dark is a cool system blades in the dark if you're not aware is a kind of heist game a heist role-playing game where you have the uh where it's uh time doesn't just go forwards so you prep the heist then you jump into the moment of action for the heist but mm -hmm. that it skill checks might are like just as likely to happen in the past as the present so in our case it was you know part of our plan in this i won't go into all details but involved you know we had to create some sedatives that looked like real drugs mm -hmm. but the actual scene where the chemist on the team tries to create the drugs happened happens not in chronology in chronology right it happens at the point where the pill is slipped to the guard and then you flash back and do right. the scene where the pills were made so a guard would maybe stumble across you and you go ah but i bribed him 10 hours ago right yeah but then you do that it's not just that you roll to see if you did you right. do that scene oh, so that cool. can do in traditional complications right uh -huh. so like you know, so in this case, it was interesting because we had to create this drug, um, to, uh, and that we knew this person had just taken to find out what it did. Hmm. So we've managed to, you know, we'd done the skill check in the moment to slip this guy the, the, the drug to distract the bodyguard or whatever. But then you do the flashback to, but what actually happened in the drug lab? And someone hmm. was like, well, I think my character would be there hanging out. He's probably actually testing the material. So we ended up getting like a success, but with a disadvantage, like some kind of deficit on that role, which meant that our lookout, it turns out, had been high this entire time because he's still coming down or he's still coming down right. from having been testing the fake drugs the day before. And so you can end up adding these complications and stuff. It's really, that's Blades in the Dark, which is a really cool system, but this was a really fun sort of um, cyberpunk layer on top of it, particularly because um, I've been, I, I ran Cyberpunk 2020, like the 80s role-playing system for PlayStation last year. And I've been recently reading up on um cyberpunk red which is the new pen and paper version of the game oh they've updated it yeah they've updated cool. it ahead of 2077 coming out which i've been reading for no reason whatsoever of course um and um that is it's a fun like i've got you know lots of thoughts about cyberpunk for a lot of different reasons but uh that is a, a fun that in itself is a fun sort of hmm. sandbox to to play around in it's interesting to see other things being done with it i do uh i mean one of the major things that uh changes how i feel about uh, role-playing games is how mathsy they are because <laughs> mm. they're not mathsy 
That's good. <laughs> I find I find it very difficult to remember. You know, just just even the trivial things about the number of you know dice dice that I'm going to be rolling against which particular number and what kind of modifier it has. And D and D, I like D and D for some reasons. I, I really like. I, mean, I like positional combat that you can express through miniatures. Mm-hmm. I, I think that adds. I'm very uh, anti miniatures with D and D, which is weird. No, I mean, given I, my other hobbies. <laughs> I, I, I like that in the context of mm. D&D. I think that's something that D&D has uh, that I appreciate, but I don't need it in every other game. It's just that I, I quite like it when it's in, in D&D, but I don't like any of the, the kind of the, any of the stats juggling that occurs in D&D. I find it really kind of laborious. So, uh, you mm. know, I, I prefer to be kind of free of that stuff altogether, really. It's funny. D&D is interesting because they have done an incredible job of at creating tools like the apps and things that make that stuff mm. much easier and also because it's the biggest game there is inevitably like a, a cottage industry of people making great cheat cards and stuff right. so yeah, you yeah. can get all of that stuff you actually want like the mm. you know i um i tend to travel around like when i went to vancouver i didn't use them but i bring i usually bring like i don't play much D mm-hmm. unless i have to play unless i have to gm something suddenly which has happened more than once <laughs> <laughs> So I usually have like the, the emergency kit, which doesn't involve any books. It's just a GM screen, mm-hmm. my dice, and four decks of cards, which are just, um, monsters, NPCs, hmm. and vital stats, basically, hmm. and conditions. And so you can create a scenario by drawing them at random. You can use them as a reference to just lay it out in front of you. Right. And like, there are ways of making D&D elegant, I think, because mm-hmm. it's, it's, an, it's sort of, it's a useful omni system that everyone understands. Yeah. The other thing D&D is really good for is, um, it's great for streams. It's great for vi- like, so simple dice systems where you maybe roll one or two dice in a check, um, are great because they're passable. I think people underestimate that. Like you, um, everyone, a one and a 20 in D and D both have real natural drama that yeah. comes from the moment that doesn't need much extrapolating. The, sure. Basically it's like the, the, the way I would frame it from a design point of view is how long after the dice is rolled is the effect manifest. Hmm. Because that is directly inversely proportional to the drama created by the dice roll. If the moment the roll comes up, you know, that's the most drama you can get. And D&D is good for that. Mm-hmm. You roll that D20, it comes up 20, everyone cheers, it comes up one, everyone laughs. Like, it's immediate. It's not very elegant, but it's, yeah. like, it does a lot. Whereas, like, the contrary to that is the, the, the fantasy flight system for Star Wars. It's now called Genesis System. They've made it. I don't um, think I've played, uh, I think you'd find it really interesting. In fact, I was actually talking to Jim about it like a couple of months ago hmm. about whether he would enjoy running it because I think you'd really like it because it, uh, it takes away a lot of that, but it creates completely weird results. Hmm. So the way it works is because it's a fantasy flight thing, uh, it doesn't use numbered dice. They have symbols on them. And, um, in the Star Wars game, these are specific, but they're the same sets of symbols in the generic version of this. So essentially, uh, you have good dice and bad dice. And I think they're D8s. D12s are the two sort of levels of dice. So you have like, it's like purple and red and green and yellow. And green and yellow are two tiers of good and purple and red are two tiers of bad. Hmm. So big bad dice, small bad dice, big good dice, big, um, small good dice. Right. Your skill, your skill in a thing will help you build the pool of good dice. And there are bonus dice you can add and so on based on circumstance. So like, your skill is this, but because you are in an advantageous situation, I'll throw in a bonus dice or whatever, something like that. Or grade a dice from a green to a yellow. And then the difficulty of a situation is the big, the bad dice that get added to it. And each of these dice have symbols on them that are the opposite of each other. 
Okay. So there are success symbols on the good dice, whereas the bad dice have failure symbols on them. And there are advantage symbols on the good dice where there are disadvantage symbols on the bad dice. Ah, and what you do is you roll all the dice at once. Yeah. And then you, um, uh, equal symbols. So success and failure and advantage and disadvantage cancel each other out. Right. And so you pass it down to what is left. And what's really cool about this is it's the opposite of the D&D thing where you get that immediate hit. Yeah, yeah. But what it allows for is a situation where you succeed, but with loads of disadvantage. Or you fail Uh, with loads of advantage. Or you can get a neutral result, which Hmm. is a really weird thing that can't happen in (laughs) D&D. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) um, And what's interesting about this is then there are some mechanical things. So, for example, in the Star Wars game, you know, there's a game mechanic side of this is like in in the Star Wars game, some weapons, uh, weapon, every weapon has a crit value. And so if you, uh, whether or not you, uh, hit is down to, you know, do you roll more successes than failures? And then how much damage you do is how many more successes do you have above what you needed? Right. So every success adds a point of damage or whatever it is. Um, but if you get uh, a number of advantage equals to the weapon's crit value, you also do a critical hit, right? Mm. But on any other check, so that's sometimes as a prescribed effect. But in any other check, it's like, you know, you can do something abstract, like um, getting a certain amount of advantage gives you a bonus action on top of the thing you just did. Because you may have failed, but you did it with enough to give yourself some space to move or something. Right. And it creates all these really nuanced situations where you can succeed and fail and fail and succeed at the oh, same that's time. that's a lot of fun. Yeah. Or you can, like, the, the inverse of that is you succeed, but with loads of threat, which means you succeed, but the person you've just succeeded against gets an immediate free action against you. Right. Which, like, and that I really like because... Um, it can create some really weird situations, particularly where you're not in sort you of... You killed somebody, but they still fire a shot at you as they die. Right. You? Or, you know, you kill someone, but they scream. <laughs> like, right, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it puts a lot of pressure on the GM, but I think it's really healthy pressure to be like, yeah. add a twist to this. Like, everything mm. gets an interesting thing. Where And then it's really interesting when you get into a situation where it's like a social scenario where there aren't really fixed rules for how yeah. to spend advantage and disadvantage. It's like, you fail to persuade someone, but you have advantage with this, which is that... Like maybe the advantage in that case is that your attempt to your attempt to deceive them was so unsuccessful that they have no idea that it happened, hmm. right? And that's the consequence <laughs> of having failed at it, but yeah. with an advantage. Whereas, you know, failing with threat is like they know you were trying to pull one over on them and and so on. Right. I appreciate we're now fully on banging on about role playing games, but that is that is right. I think a cool system hmm. for that reason. Like because success and failure are kind of boring without a mitigating thing. Yeah. And the dice system gives the GM ex- excuse to mitigate. Because if, like, if you fail at something, if we're playing D&D and you fail and I say, you failed, but, oh, a weakness has opened up, you can try and exploit it, that feels like I'm handing you a, yeah, yeah. a get out. Similarly, if you succeed and I say, yeah, but you have fallen over, <laughs> then I'm being a dick. Whereas I like this dice system because it naturally creates scenarios where yeah. it's like, well, you look at the dice pool, we all agree. Huh. And then there are also triumph and despair symbols. Sorry, those are the actual apex things. They, there is only one of them and they're on the 12-sided dice, hmm. but they activate sort of mega things. But like succeeding with despair is like a real thing where it's sort of like, <laughs> I've succeeded, but the wings of the ship have fallen off. <laughs> oh, wow. That seems really interesting. So yeah. I've, I've, how many different kinds of games does that system apply to? All the fantasy so, flight games? He's, no, so they, they put it out for Star Wars initially, and mm. that's like three different games, but they're all in an inter- interconnected system, basically. Mm-hmm. And then they released it last year, I think, as the Genesis system, which is a system without a setting. Oh, okay. The idea is you just apply it. I think they release set- settings as like add-on packs, basically. Okay. Yeah. Like, But the idea is it's just a dice system, and you just do anything you want with it, because <laughs> it can apply to 
It is just a mm. fairly interesting way of, you know, kind of, I think they come up with some sort of basic, you know, how to outline skills and things, you know, how to think about stats and that kind of thing. But, hmm. you know, it's cool. It's that does sound good. One of the, one of the reasons I, um, I want to, to, to mention, uh, Simba on the podcast <laughs> was because, uh, I wanted to throw it out to our, our listeners about whether they've played it and they have any house rules for it that might, uh, make it easy. Cause I do feel like it's not, it's a, it's a game that needs its second edition to kind of mm. bring all of its rules into some kind of fucking sensible order, but also just to kind of weed out the, the, the strange power spikes that exist within them. Um, and I know there are a lot of house rules out there, but if any players have their own, uh, any listeners have their own, I'd, I'd like to hear them. Mm. Yeah, right. Like, I think that's a good shout because, like, I've, I think house ruled every game I've run for any length of time into mm. oblivion at this point, and I think it's completely natural. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like this game originates from a set of D&D house rules, right? Like, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Honk. Also, honk. Honk, 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 quaff the goose. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've been, um, we took a super long break just now, Marsh. Yes. We did. And, um, in that time, I forgot what we were talking about, but I believe it was pen and paper role playing games. Yeah. So yeah, here in, in here's a segue to, to questions. Let's do it. Why not? Could you read me some questions? <laughs> <laughs> wow. That was so slick. Almost Thanks. imperceptible. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What a flawless break. Stieg writes, Dear 12-button keypad and themed plastic overlay, I recently learned that just 17 months ago in May 2018, there was announced a new console, the Amico, that is sort of a modern reimagining of the original Intellivision. From this, I extract three questions. One, do you have, do yous, rather, have thoughts or opinions on this matter? Is it too early to tell? It has some nice features. It could be interesting, I guess. <laughs> Two, do you have opinions on the original Intellivision? It was a game box my family owned before I before they got a, a NES. Oh, how I loved those little plastic sleeves and the creepy box art of games like Microsurgeon, Beauty and the Beast, Atlantis, and Sewer Sam. I'm not sure that all of those are real games. Is Atlantis? <laughs> is Atlantis someone? Is is an Atlantis someone who is like prejudiced against people from under the sea? <laughs> I may have added the extra T on the end uh, <laughs> as a result of a lack of sobriety. Three. Did you have a nice breakfast? Today I enjoyed two bananas and a morning glory muffin. It was wonderful. Stay hydrated. Oh, pardon. Steve. <laughs> yeah, I'm not quite sure. So, it's got a very icy topping. The, yeah. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> so, um, question one. No, I hadn't heard of this. Uh, question two. I'm too young. <laughs> um, question three. It was okay. Uh, this morning I, uh, I woke up in a, a fairly, uh, scabby hotel near Paddington and got a McDonald's breakfast on the way to the train. Oh, a McMuffin? A McMuffin. Mm. A, a sausage McMuffin with hash brown and because I was in a rush, an orange juice, not the surprisingly okay McDonald's coffee. That sounds disgusting, but also delectable. Mm. It was bad for me and bad for the causes of me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't really have any opinions on the Amico. I mean, it looks fine as far as these kind of new revisions of old consoles go. Uh, I mean, uh, I don't have any specific nostalgia for the Intellivision. My 
I think my family had a BBC and then I had a NES. So I'd never had uh, a lot of the other, other, you know, I never had Atari nostalgia or Intellivision nostalgia. As far as I know, I had the same, similar sort of games on it. Then I don't remember any of the games on it being exclusive. Maybe Beauty and the Beast was, but like, I mean, I remember Load Runner. Uh, and other games of that ilk being on all the all those mm. platforms. So, I, yeah, I, I'm afraid I I don't know. Um, I didn't have breakfast this morning because what I, it is the most important meal of the day. Living with you squander it as I did. Well, I had too many onions last night, Chris, which meant <laughs> I was farting all morning. Unfortunately, so uh, that's, what, that's, that's was, the opposite of breakfast, as people I, tell you. I know. I needed to expel gas rather than consume matter. <laughs> well. I, <laughs> I think we sufficiently answered that question. Yep. Yeah. And, and maybe laid out a particular scenario in your personal disco Elysium. <laughs> Indeed, <yeah. laughs> the onion says hello. <laughs> Shut up, onion. Shut up. <laughs> Greg writes, what's the difference between pretentious and ambitious? <laughs> this podcast may have always yeah, exactly. been an illustration in one yeah. of those extremes. Would you call a game pretentious in a review, or is that generally not a useful criticism? Is there a better way to talk about that potential kind of annoyance? Thanks for the great podcast, Greg. I kind of don't like the word pretentious. Which... No, I don't. I don't. I, I think it's always a trap in reviews as well. Yeah, I think um, it can either be a defensive mechanism, i.e., this is a game that has some sort of intellectual kind of thing going on yeah. and I'm not sure how to deal with it so I will mm. write it off give it sort of defensive and, and reactive in that way I think also I think mm. I think the thing is people don't differentiate between uh, something with it which is aspirational which perhaps doesn't succeed and something which is uh, pretending to uh, a certain level of intellectualism mm. out of a vanity or, or a sense of kind of self-aggrandizement. And right. the latter is what I would call pretentious. But I, I think a lot of people just see something which is trying to be clever, but doesn't quite make it and call that pretentious. And I don't think that's actually fair. I quite like things which are trying to do good things, but fail. I think often, yeah. And I think actually, I would argue that as, um, and this is a broader point, but like as the sort of, the tropes of kind of genre fiction and kind of, if you think about it in terms of like sci-fi or something, the kind of sci-fi tropes provide kind of arenas in which you can interrogate certain ideas. And the most interesting new works of science fiction, be they games or otherwise, often break out of those expected areas in, in, in how they go about exploring those ideas. Disco Elysium is an interesting example of that, right? Mm. Like it's this, um, it's not science fiction, but it's got lots of technology that's speculative, or not real. It's all variants on actual 20th century technology, but taken in a different direction. It is a fictional universe, but positioned in a very specific place and time that is unusual. And therefore it can kind of get away with a lot of its sort of inventions about society. I think when you, I think pretentious for me in games is when you embark on a kind of big, uh, philosophical discussion of a, a debate that's been had a million times in exactly the way that you're having it. Mm. And so the game that I would hold up to this and I'm, I was about to say, I was sorry for throwing David Cage into the bus, but am I? And <laughs> is Detroit become human, right. which is where you end up in this thing. Well, okay. So this is a discussion about robotics and AI and mm -hmm. what, what, what do it mean to be man? Yes. What would uh, this character look like if she was having a shower, for example? Exactly. The big, the big questions. questions. <laughs> 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 um, but done in the setting where that happens yeah. in the manner in which that is conducted. Mm. And that for me is 
pretentious, not on the basis that it's because it's not ambitious, right? Yeah. Like that's the crucial difference, right? It's not that they are interchangeable terms for the same thing. Maybe this is what I'm wangling around towards. It's that they're actually very different things. Ambitious, you can be ambitious and fail. And you can mm-hmm. recognize that ambition in the attempt to create. Because you recognize in ambition, yeah, the attempt to create something. Mm. What you recognize in pretentiousness is the attempt to create the pretense of something. Yeah. And like, you know, there's a big difference between interrogating uh, different kinds of life that might exist or how we might be able to conceive if machines is alive and doing a big old Blade Runner mm. all down your front. <laughs> <laughs> Back to the morning glory muffin there. <laughs> I was I was thinking vomiting, but sure. Oh, okay, right. <laughs> it's all down rather than all up. Oh, it's a yeah. Sorry. really cruel, really crucial directional sort of <laughs> directional spewage. Yeah. Speaking of directional spewage, continue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Francis writes, "Hi, podling peeps. I'm a little late for this one, but on the subject of game names." I feel there was a missed opportunity with Untitled Goose Game. We should have been called Honk. <laughs> I like this name mostly for the sake of making game reporters say it out loud. Oh, hang on. This continues. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, regarding Dresden Files, which is something okay. referred to on a podcast you haven't listened to, um, the story I heard is that Jim Butcher, the author, attended uh, a writing course where he tried to write the most derivative thing he could after an argument with a facilitator. She announced it good enough to publish, and here we are. Amusing, <laughs> if true, possibly libelous if it isn't. We disown this anecdote altogether. Um, I agree that the first couple of books... Um, Sorry, I agree about the first couple of books, which are apparently shit. Um, but it quickly became my favorite series. Each book builds on the last and it really becomes something special. The audiobooks are also a treat, featuring excellent narration from James Masters, who apparently plays Spike from Buffy. It is Spike from Buffy, yeah. Anyway, you want questions? Yes. He asked presumably rhetorically. Um, I can't remember if this was asked recently, but here goes. What game universe do you find so interesting as to be worth novelization? Are there any that have actually been written that you recommend. Love your work. Regards, Francis. Right, so I want to talk about Honk briefly. Mm. Does, it have, does it have an exclamation mark? It was capital letters, and I believe it had an exclamation mark. Let okay, me find fine. the page again. Because if it does, yes. we've fundamentally entered the territory of musical titles. Mm. That's not a bad thing. Stomp, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, in which case, that's not a bad thing. I, I, I helpfully support that adaptation. What I would indicate towards this point is a good interview with house house people um, by vice this week uh, in which they talk about why they ended up calling it untitled goose game. And the reason for it is because they put that name out in the trailer is basically not a joke, but like this is where we're at with it. And then everyone in the entire universe sent them their suggestions for names for the game. And they were too stubborn to take anyone else's suggestion. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Which I can feel like, I feel that like, and so, you know, I think, um, I think they did the absolute right thing um, in the end. It's a good name. His honk is good yeah. too. Honk or is good with too. I, uh, kingdoms of goose reckoning, maybe. Yeah. Um, I think the thing I wrote on Twitter at the time was heat signet. You are. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but you're not a swan, so it didn't quite work. But close enough. Somebody um, who I can't remember who it was, famous games industry person. Uh, 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 John Carmack uh, suggested uh, various titles of the Goose Game through the ages, what they might have been, and I re- tweeted to that thread that uh, maybe in the 18th century it could have been a rake's progress to the pond. <laughs> nice, 
Nice. To the lake. To the lake. To the lake. Oh shit, you fucked it. The, um, yeah, the, Jesus. Jesus Christ. The, um, yeah. I've got all kinds of internal dialogues telling me I'm a prick. Yeah, I feel like both of us are haunted by the two points in English literature skill. The won't stop shutting the, won't shut the fuck up. But lead you continually astray. Yeah. Um, regard to the question, what setting do you find most interesting enough for a novel? It's kind of loaded, isn't it? Because I've been, so I've been thinking about this recently because there's a lot of Warhammer novels, mm. a lot of Warhammer novels. And I'm kind of impressed. Some of them are okay. That some of them are great. Some of them are okay. Some of them are bad. Um, but I'm impressed by how many there are. And, and I was recently thinking about it because I think I, I went for the most recent like Black Library, you know, open submission because mm. I, I do it every time they do it because it's fun. And there's, an art to understanding how many things happen in a novel, I think. When you think about it in abstract, you think, oh, I could tell the whole story. Just the whole, uh, start to finish. Right. Everything. All the war. Yeah. Everything. You know, big space marine, little man, <laughs> scary demon, the whole That's lot. That's it. An orc. I mean, who, that who is kind of it. <laughs> it is. But you'd be, you'd, but I think people underestimate how much you can fit into a novel, to be yeah, honest. Yeah. A novel is often just a kind of one way trip through a fiction from point A to point B. Oh yeah. You see parts of it from the journey. It's like yeah, a train you, ride. You'd want a fiction where there was a small area of it, which you could uh, accommodate yeah. as part of the novel. Right. Absolutely. So like, this is where like, you know, but I suppose I, I reject the aspect of this question that is like legitimizing things by mm. novelizing them. As if novels carry any weight. And oh. I say this because, uh, like, I, 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 I kind of try to alternate between reading a worthy novel and a novel about space marines. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, uh, the novel isn't necessarily an elevated art form. There, there's plenty of shit novels. Exactly. There. But at the same time, I mean, I think being able to write an, a, for, okay, like being able to write an average to good novel mm-hmm. within a fiction says something about that fiction's level of expansiveness and the consistency with which it's thought through, I'd suggest. And I think those things often underpin games. I think that's a beautiful idea <laughs> that is not actually underpinned by the reality of the success of things like Twilight or... Oh, you know, yeah, those are successful. I wouldn't even say that was average to good though. Oh yeah. Fair. <laughs> I did caveat it in quite a cheeky way. Um, mm. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, Disco Elysium obviously has a huge, uh, backstory to its world, which is only partially explored. And that seems very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I yeah. don't know if I'd, especially, I mean, you have to count these things on their merits, right? I mean, um, yeah, you, I'd write I wouldn't necessarily say out of the gate. Oh yes, I want a novel in that world. I would like a good novel in that world, uh, maybe, right? Maybe I'd like to, a good novel. All right. Maybe to flip it, because I think there, I think you can count off the games that support this. Yeah. Right. What game would you want there to be a novel for or to write a novel for that maybe doesn't obviously support it? Because mm. for some reason, the thing that popped into my head was Opus Magnum. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> like just really competitive alchemists in an endless drive to further perfect mechanisms that are pointless. Yeah. There's something there. There's, there's, something, a, there's, there's a Primo there. Levine short story there at the very least. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't really know although the, the, but i can tell you I'm, I'm sure i've told this on the podcast before there's a thousand percent chance that i've told this on the mm-hmm. podcast before uh i once read a uh total war uh rome total war novelization <laughs> <laughs> and um caesar flew into space <laughs> his troops were very small <laughs> but so many 
Well, you say this. So there's a, there's a line in it. Two characters, two Romans are talking to each other. And one of them says, uh, yeah, carpe diem, as the Greeks say, means seize the day. <laughs> which is carpe diem Why? in Latin, which is the language they're speaking. <laughs> That's incredible. Anyway. That's incredible. So, I love that one of them was, at least one of them was Mark Strong as well. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I like to think that was intentional on the part of the writer, but uh, who knows? Like a sort of dirty protest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I'm trying to think, what would be the hardest novels, right? Civilization? That one's, that one's a toughie. Mm. Yeah. I mean, um, probably quite racist as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, that game, if you play it the way it's intended, supports all kinds of terrifying tropes about sort of manifest destiny, I think, really. Mm. If you try to narrativize it, I mean, obviously as a game, you're just playing it, but... Well, it's essentially colonial supermarket sweep. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is an analogy that holds up. And that but that just didn't fit on the box. Like, <laughs> Sid Meier's colonial supermarket sweep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but if you say it fast enough it sounds like civilization so it's fucking <laughs> <laughs> Just, shall I move on yeah okay uh, Henry writes dear bar crows as a kid growing up in the 90s I organised my games collection in handwritten lists giving each title a personal rating along with one particular piece of information whether the game could be paused or left unattended without requiring input or not. While this seems to be an arbitrary way to categorise games, this was crucial information since I could get pulled away from my ST by my parents at any time to attend dinner. Well, not really at any time. I mean, dinner's at a dinner <laughs> Exactly. Um, well, we don't know that. Indeed, and we did. We're judging you prematurely. Sorry, fat. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Back on that uh, Morning Glory muffin. Um... <laughs> This is crucial information because I could be pulled away from my ST for dinner, do chores, or answer an old-school uh, landline phone call. What weird binary categorization system would you say uh, has been perfectly <laughs> personally helpful to you? Keep podding those fantastic casts. Henry from Germany. Uh, smooth alt-tabbing. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. That is really good. Yeah. Thanks. Like um the <laughs> <laughs> Say I mean save anywhere as well, I guess. But... Save anywhere's good, but smooth alt having mm. mm, oh man, it's such a relief. Yeah. When your monitor doesn't freak out or It's been a while since it has for me. So I mean is this a is this a problem of the past that doesn't doesn't just doesn't I don't know, it comes up every now? now and then. I think well so uh, I've been aware of it recently because um my laptop is a surface book and it has a weird resolution because it has a very high resolution screen. And so most games I'll just run it, you know, 1080p because it's fine for the size of the screen that it is. But this requires some shifting and it can cause some problems. It makes me very aware of it. But I think it's, this is more of a factor of me having been very aware of it going really well with Destiny. Hmm. And like, um, you know, there's the question of do you want the sound to cut out when you alt tab or do you want the sound to continue? Hmm. Destiny is a sound continues. It's not actually terrible. Hmm. Background music is quite pleasant. Kind of sit in the background, remind you that destiny is there. <laughs> yeah. I don't need that. And you're not it. playing it. You're not earning anything in it. What are you doing? What are you doing with your time? Just work normally. And then it's like, oh, it's time for a five minute break. I can play a game mm. of control and shoot some people with a scout rifle. It's very That's good. a question on control, is it? So. Oh, cool. Oh, control the game. Mm-hmm. Mm, I finished that. Mm. Mm. 
But yeah, alt tapping would be mine. What would be yours? Uh, I can't think of anything good, but I will say, and <laughs> so I don't know why this made me remember. We didn't te- say anything about how good Disco Elysium looks or how interesting it's. Oh yes, yeah. so it's obviously um, an isometric. Obviously, I mean, it is an isometric game, um, a pseudo isometric, and oh, yeah, the it art's has amazing. It ha- obviously uses three D assets, but they've all been overpainted in two D. Uh, in an impressionistic way. So if you scroll out, it looks like Planescape Torment or one of those games which has pre-rendered assets. But then you zoom in and you realize that everything is given this sort of uh, impressionistic, dauby kind of texture, mm. which is beautiful. But one of the things that just just popped into my head as you're saying that is that when you bring up any kind of menu uh, or, or dialogue screen in the game, the background to it is semi-transparent. You can still mm-hmm. see the world through it. But if any dialogue is playing in the world in the background, the dialogue box through that filter of that overlaid menu is in a completely different font what it's really good i don't know why that pleases me so much <laughs> but it's in a it's in a, a beautiful serif font rather than the sans serif font that I, it like time has been paused and everything is more elegant now i don't know what it is i don't know what they're trying to say with it maybe it's a bug but it's really nice i don't <laughs> know why i noticed it. i was like i really like this and i can't express to, even to myself why my entire internal uh, parliament of voices is silent on why this is the case but it, i really like it I like the use of Parliament there. Thank you. That, that was that's also true. another uh, Shakespeare illusion. <laughs> I thought it was Chase Chaucerian, actually. <laughs> <laughs> we shouldn't be allowed to do podcasts. No. Um, hello. Hello. <laughs> I had to think about how to pronounce this. Hello, Quateva and Crotchet Bar. Quateva, uh, he's asterisk and says... Like a quaver. Uh, uh, yes, indeed. Apologies for specifically targeting Chris with this sin word. <laughs> it's a mashup of quaver and crate. And it doesn't work. <laughs> I think that's because he assumed that I'd be reading it. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, upon finishing uh, Control a few weeks ago, mm. two moments sh- shave stuck out to me. I two think- moments have... Yes, that's <laughs> Not right. two moment shave. <laughs> I can do that from over here. I'm not even looking at the paper. Uh, two moments have stuck out to me. One is uh, the Ashtrat maze featuring music by... Ashtray old- maves. <laughs> oh, my God. What's happened to this email? Maybe it's my fault. I don't know why. Um, the Ashtray maze featuring music by <laughs> old gods of Asgard. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other is playing through a firefight as the credits music played, the latter fittingly scored by one of Porcupine Tree's best songs. After a digression of thought from Steve Wilson to XTC and a general r- rumination on the demise of licensed soundtracks from, from movies, I wondered if you could have any game scored by a band or musician you love, what would it be? Avoiding low-hanging flutes uh, like another game scored by 65 Days of Static, for example. How about a horror game scored by Colin Stetson of Gazelle Twin? Uh, a weird narrative experience, the strains of these new Puritan Puritans. Will Johnny Greenwood ever twin his love of orchestral scores and video games? Where's that Jeff Minter game scored by Trent Reznor? A 90s slacker version of Life is Strange scored by Stephen Malkmus. Death Grips beat him up. <laughs> Janelle Monet rhythm game. I'm Ooh, just listening. <laughs> I was actually going to suggest a Janelle Monet game, but it's not a rhythm game. Uh, he says, I'm just listing bands now. Um, who would be your go-to pairing of artist and genre? Thanks for all the pods. Luke, aka Dynamic Calories from the Discords. Ah. 
Um, I was going to um, say a fun thing about Control's use of music, licensed music, is I think Old Gods of Asgard is just another name of Poets of the Fall. Poets of the Fall were the band that did the closing song over Max Payne 2. Oh, okay. Well, that figures. So they keep showing up. And, and yeah, there is a cool, there is a cool, um, enjoy our friends, like, mixtape kind of moment in, in Control. Control's a weird game. Let's talk about that more. Um, in terms of my pairings, I was actually going to mention Gemini, A, but it wouldn't be a rhythm action game. I would go for a Devil May Cry style character action game to the music of Gemini. A. I think that would work real, real well because she has a very strong visual identity and amazing music. I would also go for a, I would love a Disco Elysium style introspective RPG to the music of Mitski. I don't okay. know if that will resonate in this room necessarily mm. but i would go for that 100 percent uh mm, trying to think what would you go for while i think uh i think uh in terms of like something really i mean some of the music i like to listen to anyway is almost just wouldn't soundtrack games except in mm. specific circumstances so uh, uh, games rely on uh, a certain amount of kind of dynamism and you need music that can be reacted to that which means music that can be layered mm. and manipulated and layers of those stripped out um which doesn't necessarily suit all kinds of composition i don't think right um <clears throat> but I mean, obviously there are soundtrack moments in games where that you can just drop a f- fully fledged track i mean the the famous one is when you cross over to mexico in red dead redemption right mm-hmm. yeah, suddenly jose gonzalez is here yeah exactly yeah. uh but uh, but in terms mm-hmm. of like uh an artistic vision that can come in a game i'd love to hear the dem dyke stairs game I, I i think i wouldn't be able to play it it would uh fill me with too great a sense of dread it feels like there are a lot of decemberists adjacent games are they yeah <laughs> i was trying to think so you, you mean the sea shanty-esque era sort of yeah like but no i mean it's sort of like a lot of games get made sort of gently in the west coast and they're sort of about being in a car <laughs> yeah yeah okay yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, i have listened to a lot of decemberists while being on car trips yeah on, exactly on the west coast so yeah um i'm trying to think this is sort of the stuff that is extant there aren't a ton of games about getting divorced and therefore, could you truly say that the National has soundtracked a game? <laughs> oh, my God. Like, if you were to make national, the National oh. the game. And I think it would basically be Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. Uh-huh. Except, as you played, Navi, your little fairy friend, would get further and further and further and further away. <laughs> and you'd hear her more and more and more and more and distantly. <laughs> until the very plaintive, like, hey, listen, was, like, absolutely fucking miles away. And you'd think about everything you'd lost. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. I was just thinking, actually, I would totally love John Daniel to work on a game. Who's that? Of the Mountain Goats. Oh, yeah. Uh, because he's super game literate. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he wrote a great novel called Wolf in White Van, which if you're oh, looking right. for very good recent fiction about isolated men who lose themselves in a particular fantasy, that is a very good example of it, done sensitively and and so on. All right. Um, but... Yeah, I think, uh, and, and Mountain Goats kind of contain the potential to be both very, very literate and also kind of play lots of different tones from sort of lightly comedic to gothic to kind of weirdly epic sometimes. Mm. I always thought there was like, um, there's a game concealed in the track, um, in the Craters of the Moon off the album Heretic Pride, which mm. like could, yeah, there's totally something there. I would totally play that game, whatever it turned out to be. 
Hmm. And I think, but I think of all the people that you mentioned, it's one of the people that you could imagine sitting down and figuring something out that was pretty cool as well. Hmm. Yeah. That's all the questions we have. Cool. If you'd like to send us a question for a future episode of the podcast, you can do so by emailing us at questions at creightoncrowbar.com. You can also tweet us at Crate and Crowbar. Thanks as ever to our Patreon backers, whom make all of this possible. Take of that what you will. <laughs> <laughs> what have you wrought? Yeah, exactly. What have you done? The address to find out what you've done is <laughs> patreon.com forward slash Crate and Crowbar. Hmm. We also have a YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Crate and Crowbar, exclusively populated by episodes of a podcast you've already listened to. <laughs> Incredible. What a fantastic opportunity <laughs> to subscribe. Um, <laughs> if you would like to uh, follow us as individuals, this is pointless in my case because I basically don't tweet. I'm at C. Thurston. That's C-T-H-U-R-S-T-E. Mm. <laughs> And I'm Marsh Davis, M-A-R-S-H-D-A-V-I-E-S. I also don't really tweet, but I do spend an awful lot of time on Twitter being angry. Just, I don't think you can... Silently angry. I don't think you could absorb that through following me. If you want to absorb I that really, vibe. <laughs> I really am very angry most of the time. Wouldn't it be good if, um, like, you're, you know, there was some sort of synesthesia where you could be on someone's twitter page and just sort of get like a hum that's how they were feeling <laughs> just a raw bellow i want to check case. in on mm, <laughs> screaming into a furnace it's yeah. marsh davies <laughs> <laughs> that's me yeah. Ooh, thanks, thanks for, for living, living everybody, everybody.